Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right, cool. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, in the NFL, the offseason news. The NFL still continues. The NFL season still dominates, even though they're not playing any more games, even though the regular season and the playoffs and the Super Bowl and the Pro Bowl, all of those things are over with. The NFL is still dominating the news. The NFL PA, the NFL Players Association representatives approved the CBA or the collective bargaining agreement. A player representatives of the NFL PA voted to send the new proposed collective bargaining agreement to full NFL membership for a final vote. Now the deal, the collective bargaining agreement or the deal that they came up with would include a switch to a 17 game season, additional roster spots, a shortened preseason, increased revenue for players, and improve pensions for former players. All those things seem nice. All those things seem pretty good. All those things seem kosher. Except if I'm a player, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if we're going to be switching from playing 16 regular season games to 17 regular season games, where is my finances? Where is my payday? Where is the finances that's going to back that up? Shortened preseason, okay, no big deal, that's great, that's wonderful, but then again, I'm putting my body, I'm putting my time and effort through a 17-game schedule instead of 16. I need to be compensated for that, big boys. I need to be compensated for that extra game owners. Let's go. Increased revenue for the players. Where, how, when, why, okay. Additional uh, improved pensions for former players, that's good. All the old players who help pave the way for us to be celebrities, for us to be public figures, for us to be making the money and having the lifestyle, the generational wealth that we will accumulate while playing in the NFL. That's all nice and that's all fine and dandy. And I'm glad that the new CBA that was written up and took a look upon and negotiated and talked about with the players and the owners. I'm glad that it included those type of things. But again, getting back to me, because in this world that we live in, it's all about withers. What is in it for me? What is in it for the players that are playing right now? If I'm going to be putting myself again through a 17-game schedule, what is? how am I going to be compensated? Not with a shortened season as far as the preseason is concerned and practices and everything like that. Now, how am I going to be getting paid more money? How am I going to be able to make more money if we're going to be playing uh, another game as far as the regular season is concerned? Prominent players who are against the deal Russell Wilson tweeted the at NBA and at MLB are doing it right. Players come first. All at NFL players deserve the same. We should not rush the next 10 years for today's satisfaction. I vote no. Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, according to ESPN's Adam Schefter, Rodgers was, quote, one of the biggest objectors during the NFLPA's representative vote. Rodgers reportedly wants further changes to the off-season program, including increased free time for players. And then, of course, we had Steelers center Marquise Pouncey making his mother and his parents and everyone associated with this guy very proud, where he said, quote, I vote no 
fuck that shit. Our NFLPA, the dudes at the top, the leaders, they ain't looking out for the best for the players. Um, I'm quite sure that the English teachers where you went to elementary school, junior high school, high school, the University of Florida, I'm quite sure they're all proud with that eloquent, loquacious statement that you that you uh, pondered up there, Mike. Very nice. Other prominent players who oppose the deal are such stars as J.J. Watt of the Houston Texans, Richard Sherman of the San Francisco 49ers, Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints, and Leonard Fournette of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, of course, the main reason for the players opposing the new CBA, of course, is the proposed 17-game schedule. So what Sherman said on radio on 95.7 The Game, he said, it's odd to me when you hear players' safety is their biggest concern, but it seems like player safety has a price tag. Player safety up to the point of, hey, 17 games makes us this much money, so we really don't care how safe they are. Interesting, interesting. JJ's response has gotten also some pushback from other players. Two players who spoke with Yahoo Sports on Thursday night, they said they're uh, frustrated with uh, with Watt, that a player of his stature would speak out against the prior deal to a Friday conference call with the NFLPA. In fact, one player said that he said, quote, I wish we could get on the phone with the union and ask some questions before people start shooting things down already. As we know, J.J. Watt, and there's always been talk about, well, you know, if we don't go ahead and we say we're not going to accept this deal and we get locked out. I mean, there's always, when we're talking about labor negotiations, the representative from the uh, Players Association and such, the Morris Smith and others, they always say, you know what, hey, man, save your money. Save your money because there's a negotiating deal that's going to be coming up. There's a new CBA that we're working on right now just in case, just in case of emergency. Have yourself a slush fund. Have yourself a little bit of extra change because if we have to go on strike or if we're getting, going to get locked out, you need that money because we won't be picking up those game checks. So you see these rank-and-file players or you see these guys who are First year in the league, second year in the league, second stringers, third stringers, practice squad players. They're sitting up here and talking about why are we having such guys as J.J. Watt and all these other guys who are making buku bucks deciding the fate of the next five, ten years of what we're going to be doing. This is our employment that we're talking about. This is the way that we're making our money. So I can see the third string quarterback or I can see the third string guard or I can see the backup punter or the guy who's on the practice squad who's a rookie, who's a second-year guy, who's not making tens of millions of dollars. I can see him sitting there going, wait a minute, man. I mean, are we trying to negotiate a deal that's good for the players at the very top? Are we trying to negotiate a deal that's going to be good for everybody, from the J.J. Watts all the way down to the unsigned free agent who's just barely trying to make the team for his rookie year? J.J. Watt, if you want to take a look, this guy signed a six-year, $100 million contract extension with the Houston Texans on September 2nd, 2014. So Watt still has two years remaining on his contract for a combined $33 million. Not all of it guaranteed, but still, we're talking about the number $33 million. And if J.J. Watt and the other players do go on strike, or if the owners, owners do lock them out because of their inability to get a agreement done, well, J.J. has earned over $85 million in his career. So hopefully, maybe, Possibly, you're also talking about sponsorships and other things on top of the $85 million that J.J. has earned playing football. So for him, it's a matter of, I can afford to take the hit of missing game checks. I'm not going to like it. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not angling for it. But I'm in a better situation to sit out 
than say all the other guys or some other guys who are just again barely trying to make the squad and these guys who are trying to barely make the squad are trying to have their voices be heard to say hey wait a minute Richard Sherman hey wait a minute Russell Wilson hey wait a, wait a minute Aaron Rodgers and others man before we start talking about turning down deals and going back to the negotiating table and talk about what we're going to be doing if we get locked down and what our strategy is there hey man let's let me just let me just voice my opinion. Let me take a look at the deal. Let me have a conference call with you folks so I can see what's going on, so I can hear what's going on, so I can, again, voice my opinion about what's going on. Same thing with the players in terms of De- DeMar Smith, the um, uh, Players Association president. Hey, man, let me see what's going on. Let me talk to you a little bit. I mean, yeah, I'm not the guy who led the league in passing yardage or touchdowns. I'm not the guy who's supposed to be the face of the league. I'm not at the stature of a Patrick Mahomes. I'm not at the stature of a Lamar Jackson. I'm not at the stature of a J.J. Watt. But can I still talk to you? Can I have my voice be heard? Can I have my opinion be heard and have it have some weight, a little bit of weight? Maybe not as much as the guys who are putting the NFL in front of the people in terms of their viewership in terms of their passion, in terms of the reason why they watch NFL football, the reason why they're a fan of this team. I'm not at the stature of an Aaron Rodgers. I'm not at the stature of a Richard Sherman. I'm not at the stature, again, of a Patrick Mahomes or a, or a Philip Rivers or anything like that. I haven't been in the league. I haven't paid the dues as much as a Tom Brady, as much as a Aaron Rodgers, as much as a Philip Rivers. I don't have that name recognition, recognition, recognition. So because of that, my name, face, likeness, and everything else doesn't resonate. So maybe I shouldn't have as much say and as much sway when we talk about the next CBA. But damn, can I at least have something? Can I at least feel a little bit involved about what's going on? So I can understand where these lower-tier guys are expressing, expressing those type of feelings and sometimes have a little bit of animosity towards someone like a J.J. Watt and Russell Wilson who are talking about, we need to do this, we need to do that. Hey, man. Different walks and different places in life right now. If we're going to be accepting the bad deal, accept the bad deal. Or I just need to get paid. I just need to go ahead and keep doing what we need to be doing. So when we talk about labor negotiations in sports, and we're talking about labor negotiations in the NFL, and we're talking about labor negotiations in the NFL on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with Wendell Wallace, me as your host, talking about what's going on today in the world of sports in the NFL. When we talk about all these things, the biggest names and the stars in the union are always going to be taken care of first. The rank and file follow and do the most adjusting. I'm sorry, that's just the way it goes. When the NBA goes ahead and they negotiate the deal and they put in the Supermax and all of these other type of contracts, it's to benefit the Chris Pauls and the LeBron James and the highest paid players and the guys who make the most money in terms of off the court and the guys who are the most valuable to the league. That's just the way it goes. If you didn't like that, don't vote Chris Paul as your as your pre- uh, president of the Players Union. It's the same thing in baseball. I mean, these guys are set up to where the guys who are the most responsible for the popularity of the game, they should be the ones that benefit the most. And I don't blame it at all. I don't blame them at all for having that type of attitude. In fact, that's the way it is in every type of labor negotiations. When you're just starting out in the league, when you're just starting out in a career, when you're just starting out anywhere, whether it be playing sports, whether it be playing professional sports or going to a job itself where you're sitting behind a desk or where you're on the phone all day or where you're standing up on your feet teaching somebody, whenever you're starting a profession in your life and you're 22, 23, 24 years old, just fresh out of college, 
No, you don't have that much of a sway. You don't have that much of a say. You don't have that much of a voice. You don't have the strength of someone who had been there, done that. And the reason why you have the opportunity to have the ability to make the money that you're doing, not just for one year or two years, three years, but if you're good enough, hopefully if you work hard enough, hopefully if you have the talent, hopefully if you have the opportunity, hopefully if you have the dedication and the passion and the ability to do the things that the players before you who are superstars did to give you the opportunity to build your brand, hopefully you'll be in that situation eight, nine, 10 years from now in your NFL career, in your NBA career, in your Major League Baseball career, in your teaching career, in your accounts executive career, in your whatever type of career you're going to be in. Then when we talk about labor negotiations, then when we start talking about, okay, how are we going to split up this pie and how much of these pies should go to the players and how much of that player's pie should go to the guys who are the most visible, who are the most valuable to your team, to your league, then yeah, the guys who are just starting the third string guard or the third string quarterback or whoever, I'm sorry, man, you have to sacrifice. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, it's the situation that it is. But man, when you're 22, 23 years old and you're just starting life, hey, guess what, man? That's the way life is. Life sucks sometimes and it ain't fair. Get used to it. That's the reason why you go to college to get that education. Maybe you can do something else while the players are being locked down. Maybe you can go on the radio and voice your opinion. Maybe you can do something else in terms of keeping ready to get back to work. But to sit there and be talking about, well, you know, J.J. Watt didn't confide in me. Why is J.J. Watt going to be confiding in some third-string guard? Why is Russell Wilson going to be talking about some rookie in terms of what we need to be doing for the NFLPA, for the Players Association? You're not at that point yet. You're not at that stature yet. You haven't earned the right to be sitting there and voicing your opinion and having it have a lot of weight or even some weight. Voice your opinion if you want to. But then again, you're going to go by what the stars of the leagues have to go by. Whether, again, be in Major League Baseball, whether it be in the National Football League, or whether it be in the National Basketball Association, Wendell's World of Sports the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, man, it's all about keeping the players happy. It's all about keeping the megastars happy. I'm sorry. When guys go in to watch the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going in to watch Patrick Mahomes play. When the New England Patriots fans turn on the television to watch New England, they're watching their main man, Tom Brady, play. When the Green Bay Packers fans show up to Lambeau Field, their main star, the majority of fans who are going to that game, they're watching their main man, Aaron Rodgers, play. They're not sitting there worried and concerned about the third string offensive tackle or the second string defensive tackle or the fourth string cornerback or safety. Sorry, that's the way it goes. They're not worried about some guy who's on the practice squad or make sure that he's getting his his just due. No, man, the NFL is run by stars. The NFL is run by the quarterbacks. The NBA is run by the superstars. I mean, hell, how long have we been doing this model with the NBA? When we're speaking about the NBA is geared more toward the superstars than it is toward the teams. Now, yeah, you have your exceptions like the Los Angeles Lakers or maybe the Boston Celtics, maybe uh, uh, historical squads like that. But for the most part, the NBA is advertising its stars to make the league as strong as it is. And the players who have benefited 
from that philosophy in terms of how to advertise the game. The LeBron James, the Chris Pauls, the Kobe Bryants and others throughout the years, the Michael Jordan throughout the years, they have taken advantage of that and have become global ambassadors and superstars themselves, not just in the United States, not just in the city that they play for, but you speak about the market in China, you speak about other countries overseas where these guys are huge celebrities. Yeah, they have taken that model, that philosophy that David Stern and the NBA put in front of them in terms of how they're going to advertise the game, not by teams, but by players. They have taken that and have ran with it and have become global icons and multi-multi-millionaires themselves. In fact, I believe in a couple of years, LeBron James, by the time he reaches 40, is going to be a billionaire, mainly built on the success and the spotlight that he's had as a all-time great NBA basketball player. So, Hey, so I'm, I'm sorry if Jason Hart or I'm sorry if Troy Daniels or I'm, I'm sorry if these other no-name 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th men of the NBA might have to, I don't know, maybe not get the fairest of deals for them because the players are taking care of the superstars and the guys who have built the game and the megastars and all these type of things. Maybe I'm sorry that, you know, you're going to be on the short shaft of it, but that's the way it goes in labor negotiations. The, the Los Angeles Lakers, when they go on the road, teams are going to watch the Lakers play because they're just hunkering. They're just begging to see Cal Kuzma. They're just out of their seat, and they just can't wait for that one time of the year so they can go and watch Dwight Howard, a broken-down, run-down, past-his-prime Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee out there play. No one's sitting up there talking about waiting for the anticipation of Quinn Cook to check into the ball game. No, they're going to see one player, one player only, maybe not Anthony Davis, but also number 23, LeBron James. So why not when we're talking about contract negotiations? Why not when we're talking about how to split the pie amongst the players? Why not say the guy who gets the most of the, pl- of the pie from the player's standpoint are the superstars, like as I mentioned before, LeBron, when he reaches that point, Giannis, James Harden, when he reaches that point soon, Luka Doncic, those are the guys who are going to be reaping the benefits of a collective bargaining agreement on this player side. So there we go. And it matriculates, and it's the same thing as far as what the NFL players are concerned. Yeah, I mean, you know, J.J. Watt is an all-time great. J.J. Watt is a defensive player of the year. J.J. Watt has done a lot in the Houston, Texan, uh, the Houston community. J.J. Watt is a guy where... I don't know if he's the main guy. Deshaun Watson now is the main guy for the Texans that players are going to, that the uh, fans are going to go watch. That's going to be the number. Deshaun Watson's jersey number is the one that's going to be flying off the shelf, not just in Houston, Texas, but all over the country, all over the world. If we're talking about merchandise being sold for the Houston Texans, but still, J.J. Watt is still right up there with them. Aaron Rodgers is still right up there with them. I mean, he has been the guy, he has been the face, he has been the name for the Green Bay Packers for over a decade. Russell Wilson has been a guy who has been the fulcrum in terms of getting the Seattle Seahawks out there for the fans, for the community, to bring them in, to make some more money. Of course, he should be able to go ahead and have a say, yes or no, as far as a negotiating deal, as far as a collective bargaining deal is concerned, whether this is something that's going to be good. And if it's not good because it might shortchange him, then, hey, I understand. I get it. And again, the players should be negotiating 
for the fact that the top, the cream of the crop, the very best, if I could use those cliches, those are the players who should be getting the most money when it comes to how much of a share of the pie that the players need to split up. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad to be with you. So the best players in the world, again, are the ones who are making the most money. I don't blame them. It's going to be interesting now going forward to see exactly what's going to be happening. Now, we've got the 17-game schedule coming up that I'm going to be talking about a little bit later in the podcast. And I understand what Richard Sherman's notion, I can understand what his concern is all about. It's like the NFL is always talking about, hey, you know, CTE is a real thing. And we're going to try to do whatever we can to make sure the players are being safe. And safe. And Richard Sherman has been on this for years. He's, he's like, really? We're talking about NFL making sure that we're safe, that when we're 40, 50, 60, 70, that our brains aren't going to be scrambled, that we're not going to be going through some of the trials and tribulations and 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 things that these old players are going through right now, the pain, the aches. We're all going to feel, and this is what Richard Sherman and all these NFL guys know. Look, when you get older, when everything is all said and done, when you hit your 50s and you hit your 60s, they realize that they're probably taking years off their lives playing this game, even if everything was perfect, even if it was the safest that football could be made, if if it was just a level above touch or flag football. These guys know that even in the best of situations, that these guys are taking years off their life to play this game. They go and sign that contract knowing that's going to be happening. But one thing is like when what Richard Sherman said is like, yeah, we... You say these things, but then, but now you're talking about not just a 17-game schedule. We still have Thursday night football. We still have sometimes Saturday football. We still have these extra practices. We still have these OTAs. We still have all these others, other types of demands that we have to where we have to go to, these obligations that we have to go to that helps in terms of taking years off our life, not just playing the game of football. So... Yeah, you talk out of both sides of your mouth. That's a Richard Sherman argument. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're talking about, oh, my goodness gracious, we need to do everything we can to make sure that when these players are long gone from our game and are sitting back in retirement, that these guys are as healthy as possible. But yet again, you go ahead and you put on another another uh, game in the season. And these players, I've heard them say it many times. Hey, man, playing in an NFL game is like being in a car crash, multiple car crashes. Now, I've never been in a car crash seriously, seriously enough to where I'm beat up, banged up, hurt up, or anything like that. But I understand the analogy that Richard Sherman and others are talking about when they say, hey, especially if you're speaking about players who are playing on the offensive and defensive line where they're basically running into each other, and they've mentioned it before. It's like trying to get on a bike, and you ride down a hill. And at the end of the hill, there's this garage, and and you run into that garage door. Well, Try doing that 50, 60 times and see how you feel after the 59th and 60th time that you do that. That's kind of like the same type of thing that we go through when we're up there in the trenches and we're butting heads and we're trying to block and all these other things. And the defensive lineman is butting heads and trying to get to the quarterback, trying to get to the running back. It's the same type of scenario. So we're going to add another game of that punishment 
When again, we're talking about players who are playing on Thursday nights after they played after Saturday, when we're talking about players who have to go over and play in Mexico, go over multiple times and play in London, and have to get used to that, get used to a different time zone, get used to a whole different type of energy concerning that, a whole different way of preparing for the game concerning that. Then they have to come back, the jet lag and everything else, and then they have to play the next week. We're concerned about player safety, the NFL. You're talking on both sides of your mouth. I can understand the argument. So there you go, man. There you go when it comes with the uh, CBA. I don't know when this is going to get done. And I, I look, I'm not privy to any of the conversations, any to the negotiations that are going on. I'm just like you, man. I'm just like, you know what? Deal, no deal, whatever, and don't call me Howie Mandel. Deal or no deal, and I'm opening up the cases. Deal or no deal, I'm just hoping that for the 2020 season, for the 2021 season, that these guys are playing football. That's the main thing. That's the main thing that I want. That's the main thing that you want. Don't bog me down with the details. Don't talk about labor negotiations. Don't talk about they want this, we want that, this, that, and the other. Tell me what you got. Tell me what you agreed upon. Tell me what's kosher. Tell me what's going to be moving on. And let's get back to the business, really, of what the offseason is supposed to be about, which is the draft, which is about free agency. Instead of talking about players and owners deciding upon who gets what and how much they get and players upon players, their own little civil war, talking about I need to get this and J.J. Watt and these other guys are getting all that and I need a little bit more instead of the offensive offensive tackle who's on the practice squad instead of all of this squabbling and all of this nonsense i'd rather focus on something else man let's talk about who the las vegas raiders are going to draft let's talk about what the washington sniper skins are going to be doing with the second pick let's talk about the nfl combine let's talk about all those things so let's kind of leave that other nonsense alone let's kind of leave the business standpoint of the issues concerning the nfl let's kind of put that off to the side and let's concentrate on some other things like football like what can we do to improve our squads what can we do to improve our team let's go through let's go through all of that shall we because this stuff about you know the nfl the uh, the players association not agreeing disagreeing going back and negotiation remember this is also putting a putting a little bit of stagnation on the business as usual with the nfl team such as teams resigning players and, and free agency and all that kind of stuff because they don't know what's going to be happening. There's some talk that you know there might be a situation where the NFL might have the ability to have two franchise tags. And if that comes about, well, what does that mean for the Dallas Cowboys who could then theoretically franchise tag Amari Cooper and Dak Prescott? What does that mean, for instance, say someone, a team like the Tennessee Titans who could theoretically franchise put the franchise tag on ryan Tannehill and derrick henry what does that mean so not really the business of the day of signing free agents taking a look at free agents draft picks the direction that the teams want to go in these are all put on hold or at least slowed down a little bit because there hasn't been anything set in concrete in terms of what the cba is going to be for both the players and the owners so Get the thing done. Get it out of the way. Whatever happens, whatever happens. Whoever wins, I don't care. Now, I understand that I'm a fan. I understand that I'm a watcher and not a player. And it's much more important for those guys to get a deal that they feel is adequate and fair as much as it can. But the players being not at strength, the owners are the ones who are at strength. But as long as everybody comes out relatively happy and they're ready to play, whether it be 17 games, whether it be 
less preseason games, whether it be less practice time, whether it be whatever it's going to be. Let's get this done. Let's move on for improving the football team because, again, I'm ready for that season to really start happening in the NFL. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. So as I mentioned before, speaking about the NFL Players Association and the owners trying to get themselves a copacetic collective bargaining agreement deal, the main concern is how to be compensated financially for playing another game, the outline for a 17-game season, according to Green Bay Packers President Mark Murphy, is the plan would have all teams in one conference play nine home games, while the other conference plays eight home, the AFC and NFC would then alternate every year on which the conference got the ninth would get the ninth home game. So if this floor if this is the formula the NFL is gonna go with, it would almost certainly mean that the seventeenth game would be a non conference game for all the teams. Here's also what it would mean. It would mean that teams, say, for instance, who have already clinched the playoffs after week 14 or 15 or such, well, then we're talking about in the NBA, quote-unquote, load management and how that's a problem because they hate to see LeBron James or Kyrie Irving or Kawhi Leonard or whoever, whatever superstar you, you say sit out games because of load management. Well, if you enter or if you include a 17th game into an NFL season, you can bet your bottom dollar that you'll never hear me holler. But y'all will holler this. The fact that you're going to start seeing some teams after week 15 start resting their players, start having load management. Let's just say, for instance, I don't know, let's bring up a team, for instance, uh, the, the Kansas City Chiefs. Let's say, for instance, after week 14 or week 15 of the season, they're sitting there 13-2. and two. Let's, let's, let's go on the premise that the NFL has constituted a 17-game uh, schedule. Now, this won't take place until 2021, but the Kansas City Chiefs, Roland Patrick Mahomes, is truly the man of the all, of all ages. He's the face of the league. Is this, that, and the other. The Chiefs are rolling, this, that, and the other. They're the best team, all of these types of things. And all of a sudden now, the Kansas City Chiefs in a very weakened AFC West, when we're talking about the Las Vegas Raiders and the Denver Broncos and the Los Angeles Chargers and such. And let's just say, for instance, for the argument's sake, that after week 14, week 14, the Kansas City Chiefs are sitting there, say, at 12-3 and or 13-2 and or something like that. And they have a four-game lead over the Las Vegas Raiders. And they've already clinched the playoff berth. And for all likelihood, they're going to be the number one seed in the American Football Conference. Okay, so let's say that happens after, say, week 15. You don't think that week 16 and then week 17, that on week 16 that you might see Patrick Mahomes maybe for a quarter, maybe for a half, and then in week 17 you're not going to be able to see him at all? And that just not applies to Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. That could apply to any team that would have a winning record, that would have a record to where, you know what, we have the advantage, we have the ability to rest our players not just one week, but also two weeks. So we're talking about, because we always know in week 16, 
of the NFL. A lot of these teams who are already in playoff contention, who have already locked down their position in the playoffs, that they either won't play their starters or will play them very, very rare. Or it will be just a couple of series and they'll be gone. Unless you're the New England Patriots of Bill Belichick, who plays every game like it's the Super Bowl. But that's also the reason why he's won six Super Bowls as a coach and is one of the greatest coaches in NFL history and sports history. But point being is that you're going to have some guys out there, you're going to have some teams out there who are marquee teams, who are teams that, for instance, are television ratings drawers. They're going to be sitting their players. Let's just say, for instance, that the Dallas Cowboys, all of a sudden, they're in the position after week 15, week 16, they're in the position where they're going to have the ability to start resting players. They're going to have the ability. Let's say, for instance, that uh, Dak Prescott comes back, Amari Cooper comes back, Zeke Elliott is still going to be there. The names, the faces, the jerseys that people pay, and, and, the, and that's the reason why they go watch the games for the main points at the stadium and also on television. Well, what happened if Mike McCarthy, the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, says, you know what, Zeke is got the ball a ton this year. Amari's been banged up a little bit. Dak has got some nagging injuries. We have a bye in the first round of the playoffs or whatever, depending upon the news format for the NFL playoffs. But let's just say that for the next two weeks, there could be a situation where, again, those three marquee players, those three guys could either A, barely play, or B, not play at all. And you know, especially in week 17, if they have, if they're all, wrapped up or the team already had the playoffs already in town, those guys aren't going to be playing at all. So for these guys and for the NFL, the owners and everything to say, hey, we won a 17th game. Well, to me, that really doesn't mean anything. It really, it, it hurts the league, in my opinion, because week 16, for the most part, you have some games where playoff implications are involved or winning the, a, a division title or you know, those are things are always going to go into play. So you'll have a couple of games that might mean something, you know, you win and you're in and you win, you win the conference or you win, you knock this team out or this team needs to win and get into the playoffs. The NFL will have those type of scenarios. But for the most part, especially for the best teams, the best teams, they don't play the starters in week 16. So now you're going to be giving the opportunity for another game of, 85, 80% of the teams not really giving a damn? First of all, the teams that suck, the teams that stink, like for instance, the Arizona Cardinals or the Washington Ron Rivera Skins or the uh, the other teams that, that suck out loud, the New York Jets, the Cleveland Browns or really aren't playing for anything. We're speaking about games that are going to be playing in, what, January maybe? December around there? So what teams who are who are stinking out loud, like the Detroit Lions or maybe the Chicago Bears or the Cleveland Browns or the New York Giants or the New York Jets or the Washington Redskins or the, sorry, I mean the Snyder Skins, oops, or maybe one of those type of teams that are playing in bad weather. What, people want to go out to see a team on week 17 like the Chicago Bears or the New York Jets play a meaningless game in week 17 near the end of the year in the weather that they're going to be dealing with? Yeah, what's the big deal? Why would anybody be invested in that? Why would anybody be excited in that? To me, to me, if you really think about it, in my opinion, I think 16 games is too much. I would like it better when the NFL had 14 games. And I love the NFL. Outside of the NBA, it's my favorite sport by far and it's my second favorite sport to talk about besides basketball. But I mean, I love the NFL. But one of the reasons why I love the NFL so much is because when the season's over, baby, it is over for me. 
Why don't you think I have? Why why do you think I have zero interest in the XFL? I don't want to see football in February. I don't want to see football in March. I don't want to see football in April. I don't want to see football in August. I don't give a damn about NFL training camps. It's August. You got baseball to talk about. You got other things to deal with. You got vacations to take. You've got time to spend with your family. You've got other things to deal with. I'm not interested in any type of football or any playing football type in August or February or May or June. I mean, we can sit there and talk about the NFL draft in April. That's that's exciting because there's the possibility of teams getting better, what directions they're going to be going in. Some of the minutiae in terms of teams who are going to be signing free agents and what the teams with the salary caps are going to be doing and how is your rival or how is your division foe is going to be stacking up to your favorite team that's in the division. All of those things are interesting. All of those things I love talking about, speaking about NFL prospects and what team they might go to, the whole rigmarole of the NFL draft in terms of what team is going to be doing this at the NFL uh, the Miami Dolphins looking to move up or move down. Or what are the Washington Snaggerskins going to be doing? Is Joe Barrow going to be drafted number one by the Bengals? And even the stupidity of trying to break down and tear apart these these high-quality draft picks if we're talking about a Tua Tungavailoa or a Joe Burrow or a Jordan Love out of Utah State or a Justin Hebert, the uh, quarterback for the quarterback for Oregon, all of these things that I like talking about, all of these things that I like listening to, all of these things I like researching and going over and studying and learning about when I do my podcast, my podcast being Wendell's World of Sports, Wendell Wallace, your host here, this wonderful, fabulous podcast that I love doing a couple of times a week, hopefully. That's what I like doing. That's some of the things that's interesting to me. I like listening to Adam Schefter. I like listening to those people talking about what's Tom Brady going to do and all those type of things. To me, that's interesting in small doses. But one thing I don't want to be listening to, there's one thing that I don't want to be talking about, is the games itself, if we're talking about NFL football being played past the month of January. No, no, no. So by the time the Super Bowl is over, I am done. I am finished. I am physically, mentally, not physically, but I'm mentally drained from watching football. I want to do something else, man. By the time January rolls around, I'm so glad that the NFL regular season is over, mainly because Washington is, the season is done and I can start paying attention and watching good teams play football. But one of the things is that, you know what, I finally get my weekends back. With college football and pro football in the months of September and October, November, December, about Saturdays and Sundays, they're on the couch, baby. They're on tuned to watching college and pro football. That's it. Don't ask me to do anything else. Luckily, I don't have a wife. Luckily, I don't have kids to have other responsibilities to where I might not be able to have the lifestyle that I engage in on Saturdays and Sundays in the fall and winter, or at least in the fall seasons by watching football. But by the time the new year rolls around, it's like, man, I I kind of want to do something else on Saturdays and Sundays instead of sitting here in front of the TV watching football. I want to do something else. I want to take a drive. Maybe I can do a little Ubering. I, let me, maybe I can go for a walk. Maybe I can watch a movie. Maybe I can go to the gym and get my fat ass and start losing some shape. Maybe I can do something else. Maybe I can, I don't know, do anything. One thing I don't have to do is sit there and watch NFL football on Sundays. And one thing I don't have to do is sit there and watch college football on Saturdays. Halle flippin' Louia. So this proposal about going to 17 games, I don't know, I mean... I don't know. I don't know. Are you into this? Are you really into another week of football? I hear a lot of people all the time sitting there talking about, oh my goodness, 
football is over. What am I going to do now? In fact, the day after the Super Bowl, this is an actual, I don't know if it's a fact, but this is like a survey or a observation or whatever. They say that the day, the Monday after the Super Bowl is played, is the most in the United States, it's the day where most people take off, use their PTO, uh, personal timeout. You know, that's the, that's the time when they do that. The Monday after the Super Bowl, I guess because EA, people are either happy that their team won and they're still celebrating. B, their team lost and they're miserable. They don't want to go to work because they're too depressed. C, they won a lot of money on their bets and their side bets and their props and they're going to be spending that money and having a good time so they don't feel like going to work. Or D, they lost their bet and their side bets and everything and they're just too depressed to go to work. So they take their, they take their paid time off. So for a lot of people, millions upon millions of people, the end of the regular season means the end of consistent sports viewing for a while. But for me, hey, man, when February rolls around, we're right knee-deep in Georgetown basketball, conference play. We've got the NBA still going on. We've got other things that I can do. But you know, I'm doing this podcast here on a Sunday night. Normally, at this time, I'd be watching Sunday night football on NBC and listening to Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and getting my stuff together and getting my thoughts together and getting my ideas together about what I want to talk about, what avenues do I want to go down, what is going on with the Dallas Cowboys or what's going on with the New England Patriots or is there anything that stood out on Sunday and all these things that I can start preparing for my podcast on. So I don't have to do any of that stuff concerning football and I love it. I enjoy it that I don't have to do that type of work. Again, I can sit down there with the draft and break stuff down and see what I can do and see where teams are going and give my thoughts and opinions about that. If they want to draft this guy, if they want to move down, if they want to trade up, if they're looking for a certain player, I can go ahead and enjoy doing the research, learning, educating myself so I can bring my thoughts and my feelings and my opinions based on education and knowledge to you. I don't mind doing that, but man, to actually break down and start talking about what happened in the third quarter of some football game in the month of February or March or April? No, thank you. So this is my long-winded, rambling way of saying that, hey, man, with on the NFL, and again, money's money. So it's kind of like, hey, if you're going to put an extra million or two or whatever, how much money in my pocket extra if I'm an owner? I mean, what the hell? Sounds good to me. But as far as from the fan perspective is concerned, and maybe my opinion is from the minority uh, side of things. I don't know, but... For me, leave them, leave them wanting more. If you're the NFL, that's the best news that you can get. All of these things I just talked about, these withdrawals, the fans withdrawals when the NFL season's finally over and I'm so depressed without football and what am I going to do next week without football and all these types of things and I can't wait. Let's start to count down the training camp or let's start to count down to the NFL draft or let's just start to count down to September because I can't wait. I'm still jonesing for football. That's exactly, if you're the league, that's exactly what you want. You don't want your, you don't want it to be like me where it's kind of like, Jesus, is this season over yet? Man, I'm going to watch regardless. I'm going to watch the playoffs. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. But damn, if I'm the NFL, I don't ever want to get into a situation where it's like, you know, it's week 14, week 13, week 12. And it's like, okay, man, just kind of like. I'm taking a break. Just kind of wake me up or kind of remind me when the NFL, when the playoffs start or the conference championship or when wildcard weekend is over with, then I'll get back to the game. But after I'm just kind of burned out, I'm just kind of worn out in terms of the 
in terms of these regular season games. So the sooner the season can end in the NFL, the better. Within reason. Within reason, of course. Because you always want these bad boys. You always want them wanting more. You want them craving it. You want them jonesing for it. The NFL, stick with 16 games. I understand there's the money aspect. I understand there's a financial aspect, and I'm not, I'm not, ba- I'm not down on you. Hey, man, billionaires are my friends. I mean, they're not my friends, but I'm not like Bernie Sanders. I'm not like that socialist who's going to help destroy this country by the idiots on the far left nominating this clown and paving the way for the asshole that we have now in the White House to completely destroy this pathetic country that I live in, this embarrassment of a country that we live in, to have two nominees on the left and on the right represent this country. As far as who's going to be the next president, I'm not. I'm not one of those clowns. I'm not like that guy on the left who's talking about. Oh my goodness, billionaires are horrible. Billionaires are bad. Hey, I think billionaires are great. I think they're awesome. I wish I was a billionaire. You think? You think these guys, the Sanders, is complaining about being cheap and being crooked and being corrupt? If I was a billionaire, hell yeah, I want to keep all my money. The damn hot I would be. I ain't giving it away. Sixty million, what? Sixty billion? Mike Bloomberg giving his money away. My cheap, selfish ass would keep every fucking nickel. You need to give your money away. Fuck you. I earn this money. Make your own damn money. I wouldn't be corrupt. I mean, I wouldn't stop people from making money. I wouldn't be putting roadblocks into making, and to have people not making money. But I love it where we just expect rich people to like to give away their money. Like somehow, some way, they didn't earn it. I don't give a fuck. Even if, even if the idiot that we have in the White House who... His father gave him a million dollars and he turned it into something else. Well, good for him. I'm not, I'm not mad at the fact that his father gave him a million dollars. I wouldn't be mad if his father gave him a billion dollars. I wouldn't be mad if you have people out there who are trust fund babies, who are living off their riches of their parents. I don't give a fuck. Hey, congratulations. Good for you. And I wouldn't give a fuck. They sat there and said, well, I'm not giving you a plug nickel. I ain't giving you a dime. I ain't giving you shit. You want a billion dollars? Work for it. You want a million dollars? Work for it. You want a thousand dollars? Work for it. Whatever you get, you work for it. I ain't giving you shit. I'll give you opportunity, but I ain't giving you money. I don't, I don't come on, man. I, you know, how can I be mad at that? How can I be mad at that, uh, at that logic? Because Lord knows I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be giving, if I hit the lottery, I don't play the lottery, but if I hit the lottery and want a million dollars, Man, don't you motherfuckers be asking me for shit because I ain't giving you nothing. I ain't giving you a dime. I ain't giving you a fucking nickel. You want a million dollars? Do what I did. Go play the lottery and pray that you get lucky. Other than that, don't be asking me for shit. So the whole thing, what I'm saying is that, you know what? I understand the the financial windfall, the financial advantage of NFL owners having a 17th game. And maybe the players can get a little bit more money. When everything is said and done with the negotiation, maybe this, maybe they see the positive of having a 17-game schedule and the players are like, yeah, we're down with that because you know what? I can give my wifey a little bit something. I can keep my kids in uh, private school a little bit more. I can buy myself that jack. I can buy myself that second house. I can buy myself that whatever financially is going to be good for me. So maybe when everything is all said and done, It'll be good for the players. It'll be good for the owners. Everybody's going to be making more money. And even though I would love to see only 16 games, how in the world can I be angry at that? How can I be angry at players and owners who are sitting there and they find a reason to make more money for themselves? I mean, this is a free country, right? Last time I checked, we don't have to go ahead and turn on the TV and watch them play. So for me, on the one hand, 
I understand the 17-game season if they agree to it. If it's financially prosper, uh, prosperous for the owners and the players to do it, and they agree, more power to them. Me, my meaningless, who gives a damn opinion is keep it a 16 and give them and keep the fans wanting more when the season's over. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. One thing that we're not going to be talking about are the millionaires and the billionaires who are ruining this country. Wall Street is corrupt. Everybody knows it. So let's give all the millennials, let's give everybody free everything. You want free education? You got it. You want free health care? You got it. You want free everything? You got it. If you want to go and pick up a Big Mac from McDonald's and you don't want to pay for it, vote for me. We could be like Denmark. We could be like these other countries with socialized medicine. You get sick, fuck the doctor. The doctor can go broke. The professors at the colleges, fuck them. Let their education be their guide. They don't need money. Money is bad. Wall Street has had enough of the corruption Because when the 1% of this country is taking the shit on the 99%, you know what I say, Bernie Sanders? I say, fuck them. Fuck them all. Okay, that's my my Bernie Sanders deal. Millennials, everything you want for free. Vote for me. Free. Everything. Because Mitch McConnell, who will run the Senate and the Republicans, Of course they will bow down and let me do everything that I want to do. Of course the Republicans and the Republican Party, of course they're going to acquiesce to me and all my socialist ideas. So don't worry. When I get into the office and we beat Trump and I go in there and on day one, hold on y'all, millennials who are stupid enough to believe the bullshit that I'm saying about free this and free that and that the Republicans are going to allow their billionaire friends and the Democrats are going to allow their billionaire friends to pay for your health care, to pay for your student debt, to pay for your education, to pay for your everything. Sure, the Republicans are just going to sit back and say, go ahead, Bernie, no problem. Just hold on. Hold on. Don't pay back your student debt because I'm going to get rid of all of that. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Stay in the hospital a little bit more. If you need to stay in the hospital until February of 2021, go for it. Because the day I take office, all of the shit that I have right here as far as free, it's all going to be free. Don't pay back your student debt. Go to the college that you can't afford. 
because when you vote me in as president, day one, all of that is going to be free, free, free. I am a socialist, just like those in Denmark. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Uh, that was my, um, yes, if you didn't know, that was my uh, impersonation of Pete Buttigieg. Uh, okay, here we go, back to football. So, we're taking a look at the NFL Combine. So, Joe Burrow over here is the quarterback who most likely is going to be drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. He's been kind of the star of the show so far in terms of the NFL Combine is concerned. Uh, there's been questions about his desire to want to play for Cincinnati. Now, all of this came up. And a lot of this is just a silly season in terms of, you know what, we need to we need to have something. I mean, discussing people's 40 time and how much they bench pressed and all this other stuff, the layman football fan is not going to really be interested or really get what we're talking about. So what we need to do is we need to make drama. We need to make stories. You know, we need to do housewives of whoever. We need to do love and hip-hop and have those sambos out there. We need to have some type of reality gimmick, some reality hook that people can tune in to SportsCenter and the Shannon the Skip show and First Take and the Nick Wright show and all those. So we need something in terms of what could be to get people interested in talking and all those types of things. And really, also I thank you very much because it gives me material to talk about on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, what you're listening to with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, talking about it. So we came up with this, this angle. We came up with this story that will get us talking through the silly season and through the combine about Joe Burrow might not want to play for Cincinnati because what he told Mark Engel of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram is that he goes, look, this is a long process, right? They have their process that they have to go through, and I am so blessed to be in the position that I'm in. If they select me, they select me. I'm going to do everything in my power to be the best football player that I can be. Now, if that doesn't scream, he doesn't want to be drafted number one by the Cincinnati Bengals. I don't know what is. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and I'm reading the story, and I'm like, wait a minute. That set off, he might not want to play in Cincinnati. Where is it that he did said, where is it that he said, look, I don't want to play for Cincinnati, or I don't want to be number one, or there's certain teams I don't want to go through? Where where did this come out? Where, look, this is a long process, right? They have their process that they have to go through. And so I am blessed to be in the position that I'm in. If they select me, they select me. I'm going to do everything in my power to be the best football player I can be. Now, you might argue that, yeah, I'll go to the Cincinnati Bengals, but I ain't going to be happy about it. If you might want to read into that, into those quotes, if you want to read that sentiment or that idea, okay, maybe I can see that if they select me, they select me. I'm going to go, I'm going to do everything in my power to be the best football player I can be. Okay, maybe if you want to twist and turn and scream and shout and holler about, about, trying to figure out something, try to read in between the lines, shall we say, and we, you know, oh, 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 he's going to be disgruntled, ooh, ooh, ooh. and maybe you can take that and marinate it and bake it and push it and pull it and string it along to to follow the, follow the path from I'm not happy that they selected me to how in the world can I try to get out of here to maybe have that be the narrative. Joe Burrow doesn't want to play in Cincinnati or Joe Burrow doesn't want to be drafted by the Bengals, but I don't know, man. This had nothing. I saw nothing where it was like scream, shout. This is something we got to talk about. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. But people ran with it. People ran with it. So he clarified his position once he got to the combine. He told ESPN's Adam Schefter. He tweeted it. Excuse me. Adam Schefter tweeted what Burrow said about playing for Cincinnati. He said, 
Burrow said that I'm not going to not play. I'm not going to not play. I'm a ball player. Whoever takes me, I'm going to show up. And then Burrow met with a group from the Cincinnati Bengals organization that included team owner Mike Brown, head coach Zach Taylor, not the president Zachary Taylor, but the head coach Zach Taylor, offensive coordinator Ben Callahan, and others for an 18-minute interview at the scaling combine. So everything just seems to be kosher. You know, Joe Burrow doesn't look like this type of guy who's going to be, quote-unquote, making a power play. Well, what about Eli Manning and the situation that he had? He didn't want to be drafted by the then San Diego Chargers, and he talked his way out of it to get traded from San Diego, who drafted them and traded them to the New York Giants for Phillip Rivers and blah, 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 blah. I mean, things have changed, times have changed, and I don't think it would be that easy for them to do that. And I think Mike Brown is one of these guys, man. He showed with Carson Palmer. It, you know, he's one of these guys where it's like, look, I drafted you, you're showing up, and if you don't, screw you, sit out, and, and, and we're not going to be trading you. We're not going to acquiesce and do what you want to do. I'm the owner. You're the player. We drafted you. Show up for work. Mike Brown looks like one of those owners, so I don't think that even if Joe Burrow even wanted to do that type of power play, even if he wanted to, I don't think it would be successful with an owner like Mike Brown with the Cincinnati Bengals. So we got all that stuff out of the way. Then, do-do-do, small hands gate. I mean, ladies, you know the you know what they say about people with small hands, right? Yeah, they got some small hands. No, but questions about his hand, the size of his hands. His hands were measured at nine inches. That tied with Jared Goff for the smallest hands of any potential number one overall pick since 2003. And we're sitting up here talking about, really, we, we got to go through this. Why exactly now are hands supposed to be the end all, the be all, or why? Does this bring up a red flag or why are we even talking about this as a concern? Well, the reason about hand size in the NFL for NFL quarterbacks being a concern is because quarterbacks with small hands struggle to grip the ball, particularly in cold and wet weather. And if you think about Cincinnati in December, their average low is around 26 degrees Fahrenheit, negative three degrees Celsius. That's cold, man. That's cold. There's a belief among some of the league's smartest executives that hand size is more important than the quarterback's quarterback's height. If you notice that Russell Wilson and Drew Brees, they're not the ideal size or height of a quarterback. But one thing that they did have, especially Russell Wilson, were big hands. So if you're speaking about Russell Wilson being in a playing for a team like Seattle, where it rains a lot and inclement weather in terms of the, the, the rain and all those type of things, the fact that he might not have had the 6'4 height that many people are looking for. He might not have been the 6'5", 245, 50-pound quarterback that these scouts and these coaches and GMs and owners fall in love with. But he also he didn't have that height, but he had this hand size to know that if he gets hit from the blind side or whatever, he would have the ability to hold on to the football. Of course, also, when Russell Wilson got drafted, he was basically supposed to be the backup quarterback behind Matt Flynn until he completely outplayed Flynn in the training camp, and Pete Carroll went ahead and named Russell Wilson the starting quarterback, but I digress. So according to ESPN.com, when we're speaking about the hand size and why that's important, over the past decade, only two quarterbacks have measured at nine inches as far as their hands are concerned and have and have had any success. Those have been Jared Goff, and you can make an argument about the type that word success, a little bit too early to tell, and Ryan Tannehill, another 
Another player where you say has been successful, well, if Ryan Tannehill was successful, wouldn't he still be the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins and not the Tennessee Titans where he had a good half year? So we're basing the success. So we're, we're placing the success tag on Ryan Tannehill based on seven and eight games or having a, a workhorse running back like Derrick Henry. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, so, the hands measuring nine inches. Burrow fumbled four times last season, five times the season before. And I guess there's some concern, even though we're speaking about a guy who won the Heisman Trophy, who threw for 60 touchdowns, only six interceptions, threw for over 5,600 yards, and an incredible 201.96 passer rating. His team won the championship undefeated season. I mean, we take a look at someone like Lamar Jackson, who hand size is nine and a half inches. We take a look at Patrick Mahomes, who's going to go down possibly, talent-wise, as one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played this doggone game if he continues the path on where he's going. As far as his success is concerned, his hand size is nine and a quarter inch. So I don't, I don't know, you know, when it comes to metrics, like inches, meters, centimeters, millimeters, little eaters, Little leaguers, I mean, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. So I don't know the difference between a hand size that's only nine inches and something that's nine and a half inches. It's like, well, you know, I mean, I don't know if he's a typical NBA center because after all, you know, we like our NBA centers to be seven feet tall and he's only six, ten and a half. Woo, he'll never make it. Like, uh, really? <laughs> I mean, okay, whatever you say. And also, I don't understand where the, you know, you'll have to have big hands to be successful, because if you take a look at Paxton Lynch, Kristen Ponder, Josh Freeman, Tim Tebow, all of their hands sizes were over 10 inches. And if you want to compare their career marks and their career stats and their career highlights and their career accomplishments to Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, even though they're in the infantile stage of their career, speaking of Jackson and Mahomes, I would say that uh, hand size really didn't play too much of a role. The fact that, oh, well, you know, Patrick Mahomes might be great, but this Paxton Lynch guy, he's got over 10 inch hands. Woohoo! We got we to gotta get him. Look, there's a lot of other things that people can nitpick about when it concerns Joe Burrow and Tua Tungabailoa, the other guy that's supposed to be going highly in the draft. When we talk about these quarterbacks, and we talk about them on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with me, Wendell Wallace, I'm your host. When we talk about these guys, and we talk about, you know, what type of pro prospects are there, what type of quarterbacks they're going to be, not just next season, but three, four, five, 10, 15 years down the road. There's been some discussion. There's been some, some talk to, about is there any chance that Tua is going to be drafted ahead of Joe Burrow? And I'm listening to Todd McShay. Interesting. Now, McShay did say, look, as far as being a prospect is concerned, I think Tua might be a better prospect, or you can argue that Tua is a better prospect. So if that was the case, would you think about drafting Tunga Bailoa over Joe Burrow? And the answer, let's speak in reality here. The answer is absolutely, positively, undeniably new. The Cincinnati Bengals have the number one pick in the draft, and they're going to be drafting Joe Burrow. It's all said and done. Financially, it would be irresponsible. It would be Cincinnati Bengalish before Marvin Lewis's type to be drafting anyone else other than Joe Burrow. I mean, here's a guy who is from the state of Ohio, coming off a national championship and a Heisman Trophy the year before. I mean, this guy is legit in terms of 
the fan base be excited for this guy. Now, look, the last time that the Cincinnati Bengals had the number one pick as far as drafting the quarterback is concerned, they drafted Carson Palmer. They slow-walked him into his starting uh, starting spot. He didn't start his rookie year. John Kitna was the starting quarterback that year. Carson Palmer came in the second year and took off from there and had a pretty decent career with the Cincinnati Bengals. But this is a no-brainer, This is especially when we're talking about Tua. I mean, is Tua going to be a better quarterback, NFL quarterback? That answer has yet to be answered, of course, because none of them have played a down. None of them have completed a season or two or five in the NFL. But but both prospects have questions that need to be answered. Because as much as I was admired, as much as I was admiring what Joe Burrow did in his final season at LSU, I mean, to me, who is the real Joe Burrow? Not Slim Shady, but who is the real Joe Burrow? Because... Is he the backup to JT Barrett for two years who played in 10 games while he was at Ohio State and he completed 29 or 39 passes for 287 yards and two touchdowns? Is he that guy? Is he the guy that came in as a junior at LSU when he couldn't beat out JT Barrett and he knew that he couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins? So he transferred down to the Bayou in LSU and finished the season, his junior season, with 16 touchdowns, five interceptions, and 2,800 yards? Is that the guy? The guy that I saw as a junior playing for LSU didn't look all that earth-shattering to me. He looked like a pretty decent quarterback to me. He definitely wasn't the best player on that LSU team. Yeah, he had a good game against Auburn his junior year, and the game that I saw, he was pretty impressive, made some pretty good throws, And but he didn't stand out. I mean, to me, if you can go back on the podcast that I've done and check, it, didn't, it took me to about week... Maybe a couple of weeks after he put on that display against uh, Texas, when Texas was supposed to be a top five, top six, top 17, week two of the college football season, and Burrow came out and he was slinging it all over the place and he was making some great throws. And a couple of weeks after that, and many people were talking about how bad Texas' defense was and they played in the Big 12 where everybody puts up 400,000 yards and passes for 10,000 yards in a quarter. So, whoop de damn do if I could be Derek Coleman. So for me, it was like, all right, let me kind of temper my wow factor or my excitement by equating that, by putting that into the broth, by putting that into the soup, by putting that notion into the casserole that Texas's defense is not as potent or deadly or effective um, as a lot of the teams that Joe Burrow is going to be playing. Let's see what he does against Alabama. Let's see what he does against Auburn. Let's see what he does against uh, Florida. Let's see what he does against some of these other teams before I start hip, 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 and Joe Burrow. But it was like, I don't know. Um, I guess you could say maybe two or three games, I think, after that. And I was just like, hey, man, this Burrow guy. I mean, this guy playing his way. I thought at the time, wow, Joe Burrow is playing his way into being like a guy who's going to be drafted in the first round and maybe – if you take a look at what's going on in the combine and who's going to be coming in and who's going to be coming out, I mean, Joe Burrow could be some guy who could be drafted as high as fifth in the draft. I mean, this was during the regular season. This was during the middle of the regular season for LSU during the season. I was like, man, this Burrow guy, man, I tell you, I, he's he's not the same. He's not the same guy that I saw at quarterback last season. I mean, he has improved immensely. He's playing his way into a top ten draft pick. Little did I know that he would keep escalating, he would keep improving, he would keep 
outdoing this himself week after week. And now you see him here as the number one pick in the upcoming NFL draft unless something unforeseen and ridiculous happens, which I don't foresee it. But for me, it's like, what Joe Burrow are we getting? Now we're now we, we're talking about this guy being Tom Brady-like and all of this other stuff. And are we, we're basing all of that after one season? And we're basing that, I mean, Joe Brady came in as the offensive passing coach or he's the one that put the schemes together. So, okay, who made who? Who is the real Joe Burrow? Did the did Joe Brady make up the is this the re, is this the reason why um, Joe Burrow is who he is because of Joe Brady? Because last time I checked, Brady's going to be the and I'm not talking about Tom. Joe Brady's going to be the offensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers, so he won't have that guy with him. He will not have that offensive coordinator, and we've seen sometimes even in the pro game. In terms of what happens to a quarterback, see Matt Ryan, what happens to a quarterback when you lose a really, really good offensive coordinator or a really, really good offensive mind or someone that you've had great chemistry and a great relationship in terms of being successful on the football field? Burrow and Brady clicked tremendously right off the bat. It was immediate. And I'm not just talking about from a football standpoint. I think these were just two guys who genuinely cared about each other, genuinely trusted each other, wanted to see the best beef. Uh, for, for both of them, and they just clicked that way. The chemistry was amazing. The chemistry is magical. The chemistry was Dan Patrick Keith Overman on SportsCenter-like at his best. So what's going to happen now when Joe Burrow doesn't have Tom Brady around and he goes to a team like Cincinnati where Zach Taylor might be the great quarterback coach for the Los Angeles Rams who you know took his dealings with Sean McVay, took his took his rub that he had with Sean McVay and turned it into a head coaching job. But the first season that um, Zach, Zach uh, Taylor had at the head coach of the uh, Bengals, kind of shaky. And the last time I checked, there weren't quarterbacks who played for Cincinnati under Zach Taylor that first year with the Bengals that set the world on fire. So we don't, we don't know. I don't know. I mean, my goodness, Joe Brady is 23 years old. First year in the NFL, Lamar Jackson won the NFL MVP last year. He was 22 years old. And again, we talk about matchups. We talk about chemistry. We talk about on-field relationship. We talk about football, coaching, teaching, employee relationship. Lamar Jackson, one of the main reasons why he won the MVP, one of the main reasons why he was able to flourish, because he had a quarterback coach or he had an offensive coordinator in Greg Roman who was an expert in terms of devising a game plan to bring out the strengths of Lamar Jackson. He had experience before with a type of quarterback that Lamar Jackson was when he was the offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers when Jim Harbaugh was the head coach, and there was a quarterback by the name of Colin Kaepernick running for 200 yards in a playoff game against the Green Bay Packers and almost passing the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl win over the Baltimore Ravens. So Greg Roman had a had a huge experience well that he could dip into and teach and coach Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson, with his intelligence, with his savvy, with his maturity, with his understanding, with his professionalism, took all of that in, and we saw the results of that. Is Joe Burrow going to have that same opportunity? Is Joe Burrow going to be able to click with that quarterback coach? 
with that offensive coordinator. It's not going to be all about Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor is the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. He ain't the quarterback coach. He ain't the offensive coordinator. He's in charge of the entire football team, which includes the special team, which includes the defense, which includes the offense, which includes the safeties, which includes the special teams. He is the coach for all of them, not just for the quarterback. If you want that personal close relationship, that hands-on type of working relationship, that's where the offensive coordinator and more importantly, the quarterback coach, your position coach, that's going to determine how great of a quarterback that Joe Burrow can grow into. It's not going to be so much about the head coach. It's going to be about the the coaches, the head coach's position, the head coach's responsibility when you talk to someone, uh, when, when you're talking about drafting Joe Burrow, the head coach's responsibility is going to be surrounding him with the type of personnel, with the type of teachers, with the type of coaches that's going to help bring out the potential that Joe Burrow is supposed to be having. If he is going to be the next Tom Brady, Tom Brady wasn't Tom Brady only mainly because of Bill Belichick. A lot of that has to do with his offensive coordinators. Josh McDaniels had a tremendous influence in terms of the, the legend of Tom Brady and why he's been so good for so long. Not so much Bill Belichick. I mean, he played a hand in it, but Bill Belichick had other things to do besides micromanaging the quarterback position. It's the same thing with Zach Taylor. That's what happens when you become a football coach, a head football coach. So it's not all about what Zach Taylor can do for Joe Burrow when and if the Cincinnati Bengals draft him. Who is he going to be surrounded by? Who is he going to be getting coaching from? That's going to be the key. How smart is Zach Taylor going to be to Aligned him, Joe Burrow, with a coach, a quarterback coach, or an offensive coordinator that's going to take the time to teach him the NFL game and bring out the tremendous potential that Joe Burrow has. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Talking about this doggone quarterback by the name of Joe. You can call me Joe or you can call me Mo, but don't you call me slow because I ain't good to go with that. But here we go. We got two of by Lord. And we all know what his, what it was about roadblock. I wouldn't say it's not a roadblock, but we all know what his red flag potential is. The guy can't stay healthy. I mean, man, he missed a game in 2019 as a result of a right ankle injury. He missed another ankle. He missed another game. He had to leave the SEC championship game in 2018 because of an ankle injury. He missed snaps earlier in the past season due to a quad injury. He played in practice with a broken finger and knee injury. In 2018, and this is not even talking about the injury that he had at the end of the season, near the end of the season. I think it was either Old Miss or Mississippi State where he uh, broke his hip bone and had to be curled off, and that was the end of Tua Tungabailoa as far as being a uh, quarterback at the University of Alabama. I mean, it was, a, it was described to CBS Sports' Josh Edwards by one doctor as one of the true orthopedic emergencies. Very few of very few, but it was one of the few true orthopedic emergencies. The medical personnel had to reset the dislocated hip at the stadium, and Tunga Bailoa had to be taken by helicopter to a Birmingham hospital within 72 hours. He went under, he underwent surgery. So, the good news is, and look, we've all, you know, but when it comes to quarterbacks, it's funny because the offensive tackle or running back, wide receiver, whatever, with an injury this concerning, with an injury history this concerning, there's much more weight being put on a, another position player. 
than it would be with a quarterback. I mean, in terms of it maybe being like, well, you know what, this guy had first-round talent, but not because of attitude or maturity, but because of injury, he slipped maybe to the second round or he slipped around or he slipped a couple of places. If there's any position in football where a coach, a GM, an owner, a scout, whatever, is going to quote-unquote take a chance on this guy when it comes to his injury history being bad, it's the quarterback position, especially if we're talking about a quarterback who is as productive and talented in college as Tunga Vailoa was. So Ian Rappaport, the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport, tweeted on Wednesday that following two days of medical testing, Tunga Vailoa received overwhelmingly positive re- uh, reports on his dislocated hip from teams who examined him. The MRI were as clean as hope, fractured is healed, and there is no loss of blood. So there you go. Time for the Miami Dolphins to do what they need to do and get to the number three position, usurp Detroit at that position, and go ahead and pick them up, right? Right? Well, let me tell you something, man. I, 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 I think from a, from a character standpoint, I think when you're speaking about Burrow and then you're speaking about Tucker Valoa, man, it's as good as it gets. I mean, these are guys who are solid. These are guys who come from good, strong family upbringing and background. These are guys that come from the Dak Prescott mold, that come from the mold that, you know what, they can be leaders. They can be, they have that natural leadership quality. They have that dynamic about them. They have that type of swag, that type of confidence, that type of aura that uh, players would want to follow. And lead. They're the natural leaders. It looks for me. I've never spoken to these guys. I don't know these guys personally. I've never sat down and spoken with these guys. But from the outside looking in and everything that people have said about them, multitude of people have said about them who've been around them and worked with them for a period of time is that these guys, in terms of leadership is concerned, they're off the charts in terms of character. And when we're speaking about a quarterback and wanting them to be the face of your organization and go out there in the community and try to get sponsorships and kids and grow your grow your fan base in that community, having a player with solid character is half the battle. The other half, of course, is can he play football? No, in fact, I would say about 70% is can he play football. The other 28% is how great of a person that he is. Well, Burrow and Tunga Bailoa are described as high character guys. So the only thing as far as Tua is concerned is the injury history. And if Tua is drafted by Miami, for instance, let's say if Brian Flores and the rest of those guys do what they need to do to get Tunga Bailoa, whether they stay at number five, whether they move up and take him at number three or number two or whatever, whatever. We're talking about Tua going to a Miami Dolphin team where the offensive line was rated the worst by pro football focus. And as I mentioned before, there's so many different dynamics that go into a quarterback's success once he's drafted. The team, the organization, everything around them. The, 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 everything needs to be, especially when you're talking about these young cats who are going to be asked to do so much and their responsibilities are going to be so high that everything around them, everything about that organization needs to be top-notch. And I don't know if the Dolphins, if in turn they do draft, Tua, I don't know if that's going to be a place where he's going to be able to thrive because of the organization around him. Maybe not the coach. Maybe not the offensive coordinator, the quarterback coach, or whatever. Brian Flores has shown the way he kept that team together after some really embarrassing losses at the beginning of the season. The fact that Miami turned themselves around and were decent and were reputable 
and gain the respect of a lot of the teams that they played near the end of the season. That is kudos to Brian Flores for coaching that team and keeping those guys together. But still, if I'm Miami, and maybe they have another plan in place. I mean, this is a situation where you go old school and you do what the Green Bay Packers did when they drafted Aaron Rodgers. You do what the Cincinnati Bengals did when they drafted Carson Palmer. You do what the Houston then Oilers did when they drafted Steve McNair. If this is a situation where, you know, if you draft Tua, that maybe is a situation where he doesn't become the preemptive starter right from the get-go. Is there a situation where maybe he might take the first six, seven, eight, ten, twelve 10, 12 games off before he finally comes in and starts getting some run? Is that the situation when you might know what you might have around them in terms of the offensive line is concerned, in terms of the, in terms of the wide receivers as weapons? I mean, do we do that? With Tonga Bailoa, or do we just throw straight to the wolves and just cross our fingers and pray to the Lord above, if you believe in the Lord above or below or whatever, that um, he can survive, that he can thrive, that he can make good of a bad situation. So the, there's nowhere to hide in the NFC and the uh, AFC East. If you're speaking about this guy, Tua, being drafted and playing right away for the Dolphins. When you're in the division with that the offensive, the defensive line or the defensive team that the Buffalo Bills had and the New England Patriots had with you know your coach Bill Belichick, the way that he can completely destroy rookie quarterbacks, it's 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 going to be interesting to see exactly what happens if again if Miami does decide to draft Tua, and then for instance, let's say for instance if the Detroit Lions draft Tua, I mean. You're going to be in a situation where you're going to be facing the Chicago Bears and Khalil Mack and that defense twice a year. I mean, are you sure? Are you confident that you want to take a guy who's coming off a pretty serious hip injury, that you want to put him out there right away? Now, maybe it's a situation where it's like, I mean, what's the difference between putting him out there next season or the season after that? The questions are still going to be there. I don't think it's hip is going to get any stronger or any more durable if he take if he takes a year off and doesn't do anything. We might as well get him out there now and see what he can do. All right, all right, all right. I get that. I understand that. But I think those are questions and those are conversations that need to be discussed before taking a guy like Tua because of his injury history. But I love the fact on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, what you're listening to, Wendell Wallace speaking right here. Hello, how you doing? Glad that, you, glad that you're listening. Cool, cool. But it's... Interesting for me, because I always love the top-tier quarterbacks, where quarterbacks are drafted number one or number three, or you have a combination of quarterbacks who are drafted number one and two. There's been some others in the history, because it looks like the possibility, now Chase Young, hopefully, praying to Jesus that the uh, Prince, that uh, Chase Young could be drafted by the Washington Rivera Skins. Please do this. Please do this. But um, you could be looking at a situation where Burrow is going number one to Cincinnati. And then whoever had the number three pick, whether it be Detroit holding steady or because of a trade, Chargers, Dolphins, I don't know. The Dolphins have the most draft, have the most capital, the trade to move up into that slot. But who knows what could happen between now and April 23rd or before that when the draft starts. But you know, there's a situation where Tua and Burrow, Burrow and Tua could be drafted within the first three, four picks. And if you take a look at top-tier quarterbacks who have been drafted in the top two or three picks, you go back to the 1998 draft in which 
Peyton Manning was drafted number one by the Indianapolis Colts, and then the San Diego Chargers with Bobby Bassett drafted some guy named, don't talk to me, all right? Knock it off! Ryan Leaf. How did that one turn out, by the way? Do you think uh, do you think Indianapolis made the uh, right choice on that one? Manning over Leaf? There was, some, there was some talk, if you remember. And if you don't remember, look it up. There was some true talk that it was like, man, you know, maybe the... Maybe the Colts should draft Ryan Leaf because coming out of Washington State, he had that Brett Far swag, and this was a guy just with that, you know, blah, 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 he was just that and the other. He was, you know, he was a swag guy. He was a macho machismo guy. He was that attitude guy, this, that, and the other. He could run around. He could make some plays. He had athleticism, and you had this guy, Peyton Manning, who was, at the time, playing for the University of Tennessee and he never beat Florida, and he never beat Alabama, and he didn't win the Heisman Trophy because Charles Woodson did, and when was the last time he won a big game, and he was kind of the mobile, and he was kind of a statue, and he didn't have that powerful arm, and he didn't have the uber athleticism, and he was just seemed to be a nice guy, you know, he just seemed to be like his father Archie, just a really nice guy, he didn't have that fire, he didn't have that passion, he didn't have that edge to him like Ryan Leaf did, you know, I mean, maybe... Hmm, there was a discussion, there was talk, there was conversations about maybe the Indianapolis Colts draft Peyton Manning instead of Ryan Leaf. Again, how did that decision turn out for the Indianapolis Colts? Uh-huh. So you had that in 1998. Then 1999, you had the quarterback run of Tim Couch, Donovan McNabb, Achilles Smith. When Couch was drafted by the Cleveland Browns, Donovan McNabb was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, and they booed him out of the arena. They booed him out of the... The draft hall, and then you had Achilles Smith drafted, I think, third or fourth by the Cincinnati Bengals. Then in 2002, number one by the Houston Texans was David Carr. Number three by the Detroit Lions with Joey Harrington. Bust either way. Uh, 2012, Andrew Luck, RG3. Andrew Luck again drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. RG3 drafted by the Washington Snyderskins. It looked like RG3 was going to be right up there. It looked like Andrew Luck RG3 was going to be similar to what Larry Bird and Magic Johnson was in the NBA. I mean, two guys that were just going to elevate and take the game to a higher level and do it two different ways. The classic classic drop-back quarterback, Andrew Luck, versus the uber-athleticism of RG3 and the run-shoot and all this other stuff that he was going to open up the game, sort of like what Lamar Jackson is doing right now with the Baltimore Ravens, but Andrew Luck is now retired because of injury, and RG3 is a backup quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. So neither one of them panned out the way many people thought they were, where they were going to be, they thought to be, they thought they were going to be generational talents. In fact, Andrew Luck coming out of the, coming into the draft from Stanford, I mean, this was supposed to be the highest rated prospect since John Elway. In terms of what he could do, it was like you are going to be getting a generational great, a guy who's going to lead you to Super Bowl wins and all these type of wonderful things. And whether it was because of bad luck, a lot of it had to do with bad ownership and bad GM ship. It never really happened for Andrew Luck, but hopefully he's happy in retirement with his beautiful wife and child. 2015, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota. Marcus Mariota is probably going to be looking for another team. Jameis Winston also had the possibility of maybe looking for another team because he throws too many goddamn interceptions. 2016, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz. Jared Goff drafted by the LA Rams. Carson Wentz by the Philadelphia Eagles. Each, each have played, each have been in a Super Bowl. One actually played. 
Jared Goff, we don't know about. And Carson Wentz, we don't know about. Jared Goff, more because of his ability to play at a high level, at a number one player level, at a franchise quarterback level. The other one, Carson Wentz, we think that he can be a franchise quarterback. We think that he can be a guy that can lead teams to championships and Super Bowl wins and all those type of things, but he can't keep himself healthy. So there's some questions about that moving forward. So, And then 2018, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, too early to tell if those were mistakes or to evaluate how good those guys are going to be as quarterbacks. So where Joe Burrow and Tua Tungavailoa, that duel end up when you're comparing the history of quarterbacks who were drafted that high, we don't know. We don't know. It's going to be interesting. Again, the upside is tremendous. But if you take a look, all of these teams, when you're taking a look at the the quarterbacks who were drafted number one, and then the second quarterback drafted the next, either the next pick or the third pick. I mean, all of these guys were supposed to be the, the bee's knees. So, of course, no one's going to sit there and draft Joe Burrow and say, yeah, but I think he's going to be a really good average backup quarterback in seven years. Woo-hoo! So, um, so you don't know. We, we definitely don't know. But um, put, I guess after April 23rd, I guess you can put Burrow and Tua in the same category or in the same history of the quarterbacks that I just mentioned before going forward. Or exactly where Burrow and Tua will end up as a duo 10, 15, 20 years from now. Who knows, man? I don't know. But then again, as I mentioned before, that's one of the great things about sports. You don't know. That's one of the great things about sports. You have to watch to find out. That's one of the great things about sports. It is the greatest reality show on television. Why? Because it's reality. Reality, not a myth. So there you go. So Tua and Burrow, the two guys who are going to be joined at the hip. One might be broken, but they're still going to be joined at the hip. We'll see what happens as they move forward, starting their NFL careers in a few months. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I have the Lakers-Pelicans game on in the background. You know, one of the great things about living out here in Las Vegas is the fact that I have the access, I have the ability to watch every single Laker and Clipper game. And I have the opportunity to watch every LeBron game. And, even though I haven't, that's my fault. But, I tell you what, man, one of the, also the great thing is that since I have the Laker network broadcast out here, that not only can I watch the game live that I can also watch the replay of the game. So for instance, I'm doing this podcast and I haven't really been paying that much attention to what's happening with the Lakers and the Pelicans right now. But I also know that I can, what time is it now? About seven Oh five. So in a couple of hours, they're going to show the replay. So I can watch the game at nine o'clock, have it be done by 11. I can get in bed by 12, get my four and a half hours of sleep before I head on up to 
mesquite for the week of teaching and uh, be good to go. Even though waking up at 4.30, you know, waking up at quarter of five on about four hours, four and a half hours of sleep, I'm probably going to hit the wall about 11.30, probably after, probably after six periods. So you're looking at maybe 11.16, school starts at 7 a.m. up there. So I'm going to be hitting the wall like around 11.16. I don't know what time my prep is, but hopefully I have one because if I do, guess who's going to be taking a nap? But, uh, yeah, I'm going to be in Mesquite for the entire week. So this is going to be my last podcast for about four or five days because I'm going to be spending some time up there in a hotel, making sure that you and me and everybody else, when we get to be old age, if we're lucky enough, if, if it's in God's plans for us to grow old and gray and feeble and physically weak, that <laughs> uh, the kids that I'm teaching, that I'm dealing with, will have the ability and life skills to make sure that we are okay by making sure that this planet is okay. One thing I am going to be doing, though, whenever someone calls into Mr. Wallace's class, they are going to be greeted with the tunes, with the sounds of Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, and now the Four Tops. Damn right. Everybody, every human being, regardless of age, race, gender, philosophy, religion, whatever, every human being who is on the planet Earth, it should be a requirement that have the, that you have the ability at least one time in your miserable, stinking lives. They have the ability, they have the joy, they have the pleasure, they have the honor to listen to the voice of Otis Redding, These Arms of Mine, Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come, and Levi Stubbs, Bernadette, or MacArthur Park. Or I believe in you and me. Levi, Otis, Sam, and Aretha, and Aretha too. Those four, those four artists, every human being should listen to. And if you don't listen to them, then you are a complete another fool and you don't know what you're missing in with your ignorant selves. I don't blame the kids, I blame the parents. Every time I listen, every time I turn it on, every time they come in and they get that quizzical look, and I say, you, You've never heard of Levi Stubbs and the Four Tops? They're like, Huh? Don't worry about it. Don't, no, no, no. don't. I don't blame you. I blame the parents. The parents are the one you need to blame. They are derelict in their duties. We're not having you listen to Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. We're not having you listen to Dreams to Remember. We're not having you listen to Another Saturday Night or You Send Me or any of those songs or Respect by Aretha and Respect by Otis Redding. I don't blame you. I blame your parents. So when I go up to that highly Mormon-populated area, you better damn sure that them 14 to 18 year olds are going to be listening to a little Otis, Aretha, Sam, and Levi. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, one thing that I want to mention, we got some news from the NFL Combine, some things I want to go over and, and talk about. Hey, what position is Jalen Hurts going to play next season? I hope it's cornerback. You know, it's starting already, right? You know. He was facing the same question at the combine. Almost every athletic black quarterback under six feet five and two hundred forty pounds has to face: Are you open to switching positions in the NFL? You think you'd be good as a running back or a slash type of guy or a wide receiver? Huh? huh? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? It's interesting because when you take a look at the um, NFL draft profile, what it says about him as a prospect, Jalen Hurts. What it says about him as a prospect, it compares him to Tim Tebow. Because they say his strengths are he's extremely tough and durable. 
He, uh, Jalen Hurts has experience in a variety of schemes. Hurts has the ability to step and drive with adequate velocity. He uses his athletic ability and strength to elude pocket pressure. And the weaknesses that's listed here for Hurts is he's inconsistent patience, throwing, allowing routes to develop, slow recognition of early throw opportunities, needs to get better at trusting his pocket. You know, when I read those things and I read the strengths and I read the weaknesses, I don't, for me, a weakness in terms of whether Jalen Hurts could play quarterback or not is arm strength, is his ability to, to, to read a defense or his ability to think and see and throw. Accuracy. These are all the things that I'm, when I take a look at a prospect, when I think, and I'm like, what, what, what? I ain't a scout, okay? I'm not a scout. I haven't been on the road. I haven't been through the things that they go through. I know that these scouts have a lot more knowledge, a lot more experience, a lot more education than I do. I understand that. But for me, just for me, the layman here, the one who's ignorant when it comes to this kind of stuff, for me, a quarterback, if I saw a, a scouting report that says, he just doesn't have the arm strength to make these typical throws or his accuracy is off or had trouble adjusting to different schemes and different different scheme combinations or anything or def- or different defenses. Or if I talked to him and he had trouble at the board and he couldn't break down a certain defense or what happens when this is happening or that's happening or he is timid under pressure or something like that. That to me is a real weakness. That to me says, well, you know, maybe you're not equipped to go ahead and play the quarterback position, regardless of, of race. Maybe you're just not up to snuff. If you can't make the throws, if you can't recognize the defense, if you don't have the accuracy, if physically you don't have the stature to take the pounding that quarterbacks do, you just don't have the body frame to put on the enough to put on enough strength to absorb the contact, absorb the beatings that quarterback takes, especially if they're on a bad football team. But when I see something like, inconsistency and allowing routes to develop or slow recognition of early throw opportunities or need to get better at trusting the pocket. I mean, this is something for me, I would think that this is something that's workable. This is something where it's like, okay, if we can get him in a situation where he can learn these things, these are, these are learned situations. Certain throws because you're not strong enough. You, you can't, those are not correctable. Those are something that you can't teach. If someone has a weak arm or a weak frame, you can't teach that. If someone doesn't have the mental acuity to go ahead and learn how to recognize a defense within the seconds that you need to recognize a defense, that, that can't be taught. The ceiling for that is very low. But if we're speaking about some of Jalen Hurts' weaknesses and we're talking about need to get better at trusting the pocket, to me, that's almost like an experience thing. That's something, that's something where you could take a quarterback in and have those guys become much better, have that prospect become much better at it. And if the strengths are there, tough and durable, experienced in a variety of schemes, so he's knowledgeable, so that shows me that he's intelligent, that shows me that he does have the mental acuity and the intelligence to learn offenses and different defenses, multitude of defenses that he's going to be facing throughout his career as an NFL quarterback. The ability to step and drive with adequate velocity. Okay, so we have the arm strength. We have the physical prowess in terms of being able to make the throws. We have the use of athletic ability and strength to elude pocket pressure. Okay, the way the league is trending right now, the way the league is going right now, if you take a look at some of the young quarterbacks out there like Lamar Jackson or uh, Russell Wilson, even though he's not what you would consider a young quarterback, but elusive 
quarterbacks who can move within the pocket and move without and move outside the pocket like a Josh Allen or a Deshaun Watson or when need be a Patrick Mahomes or a Russell Wilson or a Lamar Jackson and stuff. Okay, Jalen Hurts has those type of attributes. Okay, this is something that I can work with. And if I can get good value by drafting him, say, maybe in the second round, there's not that pressure. Or maybe in the third round, there's not that pressure for him to have to be the starting quarterback. He can be a project type of guy to where maybe a year or two down the road, he can get in there and play the quarterback position or at least give it a shot. And they're talking about comparing him to Tim Tebow. I would maybe say you maybe might want to compare him a little bit closer to someone like a Dak Prescott. Because Jalen Hurts, one thing also that he exemplified when he was both at the University of Alabama and then Oklahoma for his last year is strong leadership qualities. And we talked about it before. We talked about how important it is for a quarterback to have that, to have those leadership qualities, to to be high character guys, to have people, to have players want to follow him, to trust him in what they're doing. Jalen Hurts showed that, and not recently, and not after his sophomore or junior year, right from the get-go as a freshman, where he replaced, I forgot uh, I forgot who he replaced in that game against, who were they playing back then when Jalen Hurts was a freshman and he came in in Alabama's first game? I forgot, but basically what I'm trying to say is that from the first game as a freshman, he came in and showed the leadership, he showed the maturity, he showed the, 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 the way to lead right from the get-go. A guy who six, eight months ago was in high school banging girls and going to proms and being the big man on campus. Now you're talking about him being on a campus, uh, being on a college campus, playing for Nick Saban, the number one ranked team in the country, the number one football program in the country at that time. And now you're telling all Americans, and now you're telling guys who are going to be first-round draft picks, and now you're going to be telling guys who are three or four years older than you what to do, where to go, and how to do it. To me, that is something where it's like, okay, as a quarterback, as a, as a guy who wants a quarterback leading my team, that's some of the traits and that's some of the attributes I'm looking for. And Jalen Hurts has been, expo- has been displaying those types of things throughout his career, both in high school and then in college, and doing it at a very high level and doing it at a very successful level. So, again, to me, when we're talking about the trajectory of what Jalen Hurts can be as far as a quarterback is concerned. If you reach the entire ceiling, I think it's something to a Dak Prescott. And I don't think that's going to happen overnight. I think if he gets in the right situation, and you you take a look at a situation like Taysom Hill, the do-everything player for the New Orleans Saints, who right now is vying for a starting position in the NFL, might have been the only person in the state of uh, Louisiana who was bummed that, Drew Brees decided to come back for another year and not retire. But I can see Jalen Hurts maybe having that type of uh, trajectory in terms of his path to becoming a starting quarterback. Get him out there some way. Get him out there in a couple of ways, but also have the advantage of learning, learning the game of the, 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 the quarterback position at a pro level. So if I'm, say, for instance, I said this before, when it came to Jalen Hurts in, in one of my podcasts, in my earlier podcast, that podcast being Wendell's World of Sports with your host Wendell Wallace here, uh, speaking about what's happening. I think Jalen Hurts, if he would dra- be drafted by someone like an organization like a, like the Pittsburgh Steelers or the New Orleans Saints, even someone like the New England Patriots, I think for Hurts, that would be the, the, the best position 
for him to be in. And again, they wouldn't have to use a first-round pick. I'm talking about if he's projected to be somewhere a second or third or fourth, I mean, I would have no problem. And of course, I haven't seen this guy play. I don't have the acumen. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the experience of which players go where. I don't know what the strong position need is for any of these teams for them to be taking a flyer or to be taking a chance on drafting Hurts Hertz at the position that they're going to be in. But if I'm the owner of those teams, I go to Belichick, I go to Sean Payton, I go to Mike Tomlin, I'm like, hey, man, this Jalen Hurts guy, what do you think about maybe drafting him in a second? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? I mean, the possibility of him coming in. If New Orleans can, you know, if he can learn under Drew Brees for another year or two, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with Taysom Hill, how he would like that, because he's supposed to be the guy that's supposed to be taking over for Drew Brees when he retires. So what signal are you giving him if you go ahead and you draft Jason, uh, Jalen Hurts. So that would be an interesting dynamic, but I mean, to learn from Sean Payton, if you're Jalen Hurts, that would be invaluable to go to an organization like the New England Patriots with or without Tom Brady, having Josh McDaniel as your offensive coordinator, that would be awesome. And you're speaking about the stability of the Pittsburgh Steelers, learning hopefully from Ben Roethlisberger, that would be, that would be uh, great for him. That would be great for Jalen Hurts. So We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Walls. Well, there's one thing I don't want him to be pigeonholed as a wide receiver. No, no, and oh no. Well, Tom Brady, what's going on with him this offseason? Let's discuss this here on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, on the podcast. Sources told ESPN Jeff Darlington that Tom Brady is currently operating under the belief that he will enter free agency to play somewhere else other than New England next season. <gasps> oh my gosh. A sentiment that the quarterback has shared with others. <gasps> Tom has, has he shared it with Giselle? Uh, the, 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 the Brady cannot begin negotiating with other teams until the NFL legal tampering period ends March 6th. An eventual meeting between Brady and coach Bill Belichick has not been scheduled. Now I've said this before, soon at the season ended. Look, man, I have no idea what Tom Brady is going to be doing. I haven't had the ability to talk to TB. Unfortunately, Tom has not come over to my townhouse over here in Vegas, over on the northwest side, walked up the stairs, sat on my couch, and said, "When? what's up, man? Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Here's, <laughs> here's what I'm thinking about. I need your opinion on this. Should I stay? Should I go? I'm thinking about maybe doing this. I'm thinking about maybe doing that. By the way, you got me a... You got any uh, uh, kale smoothies in the in the refrigerator? You can give me. Anyway, back to what I was saying, Wendell. What do you think? What do you think I should do? I have not been. Tom has not entrusted in me about what he's going to be doing, so I, I have no idea. And I bet you he doesn't know what he's going to be doing either. It's, we still have a little bit over a month. He's not going to be able to decide. I'm quite sure, just like every other human being, when we're going to be making big decisions like this in our lives. One minute, we're like, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. And the other minute, we're like, yeah, maybe we should stay. Who knows? Who knows what Tom Brady is going to do? But when you start hearing all of these reports, like, for instance, uh, at the NFL scaling combine in Indianapolis, the strong buzz around those in the know, which means reporters and, and all them folks, scouts, players, GMs, whatever, there's a strong buzz that's indicating that Brady is not going to be back with the Patriots, that uh, the Boston Herald, Karen Kurigan of the Boston Herald added that the Patriots have yet to reach out to Brady in a 
George told her it's not looking good. And I mentioned before, Darlington, ESPN, Jeff Darlington added, Brady has shared the sentiment that he could play for another team next season with others. So, man, so who knows, man? Who, who knows? I mean, and all of these things could be true. I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire. So maybe if we're talking about the week of August 24th to March 1st, March 2nd, maybe Brady is like, you know what, I'm out of here, man, fuck it, I'm done. I want to go somewhere else. I'm going to see what I can do, blah, 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 blah. And, and maybe that sentiment is echoed by the New England Patriots also. Maybe Belichick is like, you know what, look, I'm, you know, it's time for me to move in another direction or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. So maybe as of right now, maybe that is the way both of these guys are genuinely feeling, the organization and Tom Brady. But again, if these guys sit and talk to each other in a couple of weeks, who knows? Who knows what type of influence Robert Kraft is going to have? Who knows what type of influence Bill Belichick or Josh McDaniel is going to have? Who knows? I mean, people change their minds all the time, even at the last minute. They might change their mind even when they make their decision. I mean, heck. Uh, what was it? Josh McDaniels was supposed to be the next head coach of Indianapolis, right? Bill Belichick swooped in, said, no, please don't go. Please don't go. He said, all right, I'll stay. You know, it happens. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. DeAndre Jordan with the Dallas Mavericks, or I'm sorry, DeAndre Jordan then of the Los Angeles Clippers, he agreed to play with the Dallas Mavericks. Blake, at the time, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul, Doc Rivers, they basically came into his house or where he was staying, locked the door, and said you ain't leaving until you sign a uh, you you recant you recant what you're saying, what you said, and sign with us. It happens. It happens. So, who knows, man? And those are the only the reported ones. Who knows people who are like, okay, when I go to bed, this is what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. And then when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, you know what? I want to go ahead and do something else. It's not just Tom Brady. It's not just DeAndre Jordan. It's not just Josh McDaniels. It's me. It's you and everybody else. You're going to try to tell me that. You made a decision that you were dead set. This is written in concrete, no doubt about it. I feel good, this, that, and the other. Then 24, 48 hours later, you were like, eh, you know what, on second thought, maybe not. So even if Tom Brady said, you know what, I'm done with New England. Finished, kaput, had enough, I'm going to be moving on somewhere else. I still wouldn't believe it until it actually happened, until he actually signed that um Sign that contract to play for someone else. Not because I believe that Tom Brady had this just undying loyalty to the New England Patriots. It's because you don't know, and I don't know, Tom Brady, Giselle, the kids, the family situation, the family structure, the family dynamic. I don't know all of those things that go into making this decision for me to say on March 1st, as I'm recording this podcast, that, oh yeah, Tom Brady has already made up his mind and this is where he's going to be going, this, that, and the other. He could be looking, he could be tasting, he could be watching, he could be courting, he could be observing, but I don't think he's finally made a decision. And for me, not knowing anything, outside looking in, just from my own experience and from your own experience and the person that you know who has gone through this, maybe not the same decision, of course, of Tom Brady going from one organization as far as quarterbacking is concerned to another, but when we have changed jobs, when we have taken the opportunity to maybe do something else with our careers, of course your wife and your kids and your situation and your home and everything else goes into play to where, yes, one minute you might be set right there, I'm going, no doubt about it, and then 
anywhere between five minutes to five hours to five weeks to five days later, you might say, yeah, you know what? On another, on another situation, I might do something else. Hell, on March 15th, Tom Brady might decide that, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to play for the, let me just throw out a team. I'm not saying this is what he's going to be doing just for the, just for this example. March 15th, Tom Brady could be like, fuck it, man. I'm going to LA and I'm going to play for the Chargers. Don't ask me why. I'm just going to play for the Chargers. LA guy. I want to build my brand. Only got a few years left. I like Anthony Lynn. My wife enjoys LA. She's got a lot of good modeling gigs there. I enjoy the weather. There's that and the other. I'm going to go there. And then on March 16th, he could be like, you know what? Fuck it. I changed my mind. I'm going to go my boy Mike Rabel and I want to go to Tennessee and they got that big boy running back and they got that great defense and I just love the way Rabel coaches when he was with the Patriots and know that he's got something good going on down there and my wife has been to Tennessee and Nashville and my kids love it down there. The school system is fabulous and we got this great house in this great community that looks fabulous so I could be living there in the offs or in the regular season. This is something where I want to go, you take a look at the division, and I mean, all of these things will play. And I'm quite sure with Tom Brady, it will go over and over and over again with him. So, where is Brady going to be going? I have, don't know. I have no idea. He could be playing with the Chargers. He could be playing with the Titans. He could be playing with the... We well, ain't going to be playing with the Jets. I don't know. I don't know. But again, as it goes back to my familiar saying, that's what makes sports so great. We don't know. We can speculate, we can guess, we can converse about it, all the speculation, but we don't know. We do not know. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The Washington Rivera Skins are going to be bringing in Tua Tungabailoa and Joe Burrow for interviews. Ron Rivera and the Washington Snyder Skins announced this past Thursday the team would meet with Joe Burrow. Tonga Bailoa ahead of the NFL draft, and there's a possibility, reporting, there's a possibility of drafting one of them to take over the team and going forward. Washington has the number two pick in the NFL draft. For the love of everything holy, no, 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 please, no, don't do this. Do not do this, please. Don't do this like the Arizona Cardinals did with Jock Rosen being drafted at number eight once one uh, year, and then the next season they go ahead and draft Kyler Murray. The, the offensive scheme that Ron Rivera has is not going to be so different that you're going to need a particular type of quarterback to run it. No, 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 no. Please let this be a smoke screen. Please let this be a smoke screen. Draft Chase Young. Draft Chase Young. Chase Young. And that position is the best player in the draft. Now, you can sit there and be like, hey, you know what? If we trade with Miami or we trade with somebody else and we get their pick, we're going to have a situation where we can get ourselves a quarterback like Tua, and then we can go ahead and draft somebody like, say, Isaac Simmons. And what's the difference between Chase Young and Isaiah Simmons, the linebacker from Clemson who potentially has the ability to be a superstar and all those type of things. So you can get yourself a superstar defensive player and a franchise quarterback all within one. Don't be greedy. Daniel, don't, no, don't be greedy. Look, I don't, I haven't watched the tape. I don't know what Jack Del Rio was whispering in Coach Rivera's ears. I don't know any of this, but from the outside looking in, oh, please, just, just draft Chase Young. Please, don't, don't, no outside the box. 
No thinking wild. Just, just believe in Dwayne Haskins. Draft yourself Chase Young, and let's just start from there. You, you ain't going to be – this isn't a San Francisco 49ers situation where they had the number two pick last season and then they're in the Super Bowl this season. The Washington Rivera skins, Inept skins, why am I still fans with them skins? It must be because I'm from the hometown skins. The only reason – look, they're not going to be in a position to make that type of leap, leap. And let's not go for that. Let's build, let's build, let's build. And by the way, it took San Francisco years. They weren't they they were bad for three or four years. But what was the, what was the key? They kept drafting, and every year they were bad. They kept drafting, and they got themselves a good draft pick, and they put themselves in a good position. And finally, they got themselves a team that could be able to compete in the Super Bowl. It's not an overnight thing. It is not an overnight thing. The Washington professional football team from D.C. slowly. Patiently build, build, build. Draft yourself that franchise defensive player. Please. This guy has the this guy has the ability to be the best player in that draft. A franchise changing type of pass rusher. Get him. In the league that is so that, that is so heavy on passing the ball and passing schemes. You need somebody who can put the they could put pressure on the quarterback. And him and Ryan Kerrigan, please. Chase Young and Ryan Kerrigan, that's a good that's a good start. That is a good start. So again, please just stay there and draft yourself. Chase Young. Nothing crazy. Nothing outside the box. Nothing zany. Nothing loony. Anything like that. Just go ahead and draft yourself the best player, which is Chase Young. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. I want to thank you very much for listening to my podcast. I'm going to hit one more thing that I wanted to hit on, talking about my Georgetown Hoyas very quickly, watch them play today. There was something that I wanted to do, but I don't have time. I'm going to run out of time. But on my next podcast, I swear (laughs) I am going to have this conversation with you. I saw a saw a documentary on Showtime, Hitsville, The Making of Motown. And I have just been jo- jonesing to have a Motown versus Stax discussion and really expand on that and talk about my favorite overall artists and my favorite looking soul singers in the 1960s when we're talking about the most attractive and the most sexiest soul singers in the 1960s. 
I'll give you a hint. It's the tie between Florence Ballard and Tammy Terrell. And I can see folks right now. Oh, Wendell, this is the doggone 21st century. Would you stop? Would you stop objectifying the women? Would you stop ranking women about how good they look and how attractive they are and how sexy they look? That is so sexist. That is so cavemanish. That is so old school, 1950s. Move on, evolve, grow, mature. Look, look, ladies. When we're talking about overall attractiveness and when I'm talking about sexy, when I'm talking about, you know, the word attractive, for me, it means everything. It means your character. It means your heart. It means your morals. It means your personality. It means the way you carry yourself. The way you carry yourself could be sexy. Your intelligence could be sexy, as long as well as with your your outer beauty, as long with the vanity of just looking to see the the shape and the curves of your body and how good you look and your attractive level on a basic vanity type of scale, you know, the caveman type of scale. I mean, I I put in all of those th- all of those things. Let me tell you something, man. When you're talking about that, have you ever seen these women on um, Love and Hip Hop or Basketball Wives or The Real Housewives of Orange County and New York and all of them clowns on Bravo? Let me tell you something, especially on the VH1 shows or what one or Chicago Inc. or whatever. Those women on that show, them black women are flipping gorgeous, man. Beautiful, all of those things. But my goodness, they are such an embarrassment. They are such a walking time bomb. They are so, what's the word I'm looking for? Pathetic in terms of just the way they carry themselves, their intelligence level, at least of what they portray on the show. I'm not there. But what VH1, how VH1 portrays these folks from a guy who, is, who stops by and takes a look at those shows every blue moon when I want to see how good looking them women are when they're all dolled up and made up. The way the television show makes those girls look to be so ignorant, look to be such an embarrassment, I wouldn't, I wouldn't date, I wouldn't sleep, I wouldn't come near any of them women. And I'm quite sure they don't give a damn. They're probably happy because they wouldn't come close to me neither. That's fine. Good. That means we don't have anything to worry about. You don't want to get with me? I don't want to get with you. But man, them girls are just beautiful on the outside. They, they're, I'm sorry, they're portrayed... They're filmed to be absolutely beautiful on the outside in complete ugliness train wrecks on the outside. For me, no thanks. Beauty's only skin deep. Hey, hey, hey. So if you're looking for a lover, don't bu- judge a book by its cover. So when I'm talking about the discussion that I'm going to be having with, you know, we're talking about Tammy Terrell or Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson and Mary Wells. And I'm thinking about, I'm talking about Diana Ross I'm Carla Thomas and Anna James. I'm talking about how absolutely beautiful the women are and this, that, and the other. I ain't objectifying them because I'm not talking about just their outer beauty. I'm just talking about them. I mean, Tammy Terrell, what she went through. I mean, how can you not fall in love with her? Man, what James Brown did to her, what David Ruffin did to her, how she finally passed away, her strength, her inner strength of what she had to go through and everything, the relationship that she had with Marvin Gaye in terms of that being brotherly and sisterly type. I mean, how can you not fall in love? How could your attractive level for Tammy Terrell not go off the charts when you read and hear her story? Absolutely incredible. Same thing with Flores Ballard and Mary Wells. Just unbelievable. But basically, next <clears throat> next podcast, 
I guarantee you that I'm going to be talking about that stuff just in terms of, man, I would just love to be, like I said, man, being at the Howard Theater in D.C. or maybe being at the Apollo Theater in New York City and then hanging out at the Teresa Hotel back in the day. You had Malcolm X on one floor. You had Muhammad Ali on the other floor. Then Cassius Clay. And you could be hanging out with great jazz artists and you could be hanging out with great soul artists and you could be hanging out with Ray Charles. It's, it's just, bam. I mean, for all of the bullshit that my folks and my people and my ancestors and my community, but this country put us through back in the 1960s, the bullshit that we had to absolutely go through or the bullshit that they had to absolutely go through, man, it had to be a lot of fun in some other ways also, other than what was placed upon us, the obstacles, the pain, the hurt, the disrespect, and others. So I am going to be talking about Stacks, Pittsville, and all of that stuff on my next podcast. Near the end. Near the end. Near the end. Just like right now. Near the end. Near the end. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad to be with us. So glad to be with you. Maria Sharapova, her career is over. It is done. She announced her retirement. Uh, let me see here. It was on Wednesday. She is giving up the game at the age of 32 in an essay she wrote for Vanity Fair. How do you leave behind the only life you've ever known? How do you walk away from the courts you've trained on since you were a little girl, the game that you love, one which brought you untold tears and unspeakable joys, a sport where you found a family along with fans who rallied behind you for more than 28 years. So, uh, yeah, she's, she's, uh, she's saying siren hour. She's saying goodbye. So when you take a look at her career accomplishments, 2004, when she was 17, she burst upon the scene when she beat then number one Serena Williams to win the Wimbledon singles final. I guess you could say that was a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing because it opened the door for her tennis career, which is certainly going to end, her and end up in the Hall of Fame. It opened up the door for the world to know who she was and basically took this young girl, a teenager at the time, and put her into the spotlight and gave her opportunity to make a whole bunch of money, to make generational type money and do things that she never thought could do and win titles and tournaments and make a whole buku load of money and all those type of things. That was a blessing. The curse was the fact that when she beat Serena Williams when she was 17, that pissed off Serena Williams so much she said, that bitch ain't going to ever beat me again at anything in terms of tennis is concerned. And by golly, that happened. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what he said. Because I remember watching that match, and boy, was I pissed off when Serena lost. But it was just like, when she lost to her, it was like, she was like, hey, congratulations, Maria. This is great. This is wonderful. I'm so happy that you won your first Grand Slam championship. I'm going to win a lot more, so I'm not too upset. I'm just happy for you and this, that, and the other. It was almost like they were like buddy buddies. You know? It was almost like they were like best friends out there. Like, hey, this, that, and the other. I'm so happy that you won. I don't know what happened between that trophy presentation where those two were acting like 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 teenage BFFs. I don't know what happened between that day and now, but geez, man. I mean, Serena, it was just like, I'm going to whip your ass. I'm going to kick your ass every time we play on the tennis court. So again, it was a blessing and it was a curse, the fact that um, Sharapova won that championship when she was 17. More of a blessing, but... Boy, she, she got the wrath of Serena, something fierce. So, she won five Grand Slam titles, two victories at the French Open in 2012 and 2014. She also won a silver, silver, silver medal at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. 
and she's won 36 World Tennis Association titles over her career. And as I mentioned before, she was the next in line as far as the attractive Russian female tennis players after Anna Kornikova paved the way that uh, you could, you know, look good and be great and be a hottie and be a diva and you don't have to win anything and you can still make buku bucks and become a public figure and make a whole bunch of money doing that. I mean, Anna paved the way for Maria who walked down that path and she cashed in very nicely and she could actually play tennis at a high level, at a high level. Kornikova could play tennis at a high level. She just didn't, she just wasn't up to snuff with the Williams sisters or Lindsay Davenport or Jennifer Capriati or, or, or Martina Hingis or any of them gals, but uh, she could play. She just wasn't, you know, the ultimate champion as far as singles competition is concerned for a short amount of time. Um, Maria Sharapova was so, when it was like, wow, not only is this Russian female tennis player who looks really attractive, not only can she play, but she can also win majors. Oh, shit. That's when the money started rolling in for her. She signed numerous endorsement deals with major companies like Avion and Tag Heuer and Nike. And all of those deals landed her at the top of Forbes list of highest earning female athletes for 11 straight years. So maybe that was the reason why Serena was whipping her ass and taking it so personal every time they played. It's because, wait a minute, I am the best tennis player on earth, especially after Justina had, uh, had then, uh retired, when Kim Kleister's retired, when Capriali retired, when Venus slowed down just a little bit, when Capriali burned herself out. You know, I'm, I'm the best when Martina Hingis was finally beaten, them, beaten into submission by the Williams sisters as far as their aggressive, strong type of play is concerned, when Lindsay Davenport finally exited and it was Williams the Williams sisters world and everybody else was just paying a little bit of rent it's like Serena's looking around talking about wait a minute I'm winning championships I got myself a good looking ass I got myself a great looking body and I'm up here being second as far as Forbes is concerned over this skinny tall rushing gal oh fuck nah so she was she whooped her ass every time they got a chance but then again hey you know what there was some other things that went into that situation, into that dynamic, to where Serena has herself to blame <clears throat> stealing her boyfriend. But um, her career, speaking of um, Sharapova, her career took a turn for the worse in 2016. She was banned for two years for testing positive for a performance-enhancing drug. Her suspension was later reduced to 15 months. So between her return and her retirement, she won just one singles tournament. And I remember Anna Ivanovich, another hottie, was not too pleased. <laughs> she was not too happy about Sharapova. Now, amongst the gals, Sharapova was not the, uh, she wasn't one who was going to pal around. She wasn't going to, uh, you know, become friends with all these gals. It's like, look, you know, like, I'm here to do a job. I'm here to be, to do a job, to win titles, to win tournaments, to be the best player I can. And I've got my life. I got my things going on and doing, I don't, you know, I'm not here to, you know, become buddy buddies with, with, with you guys, with you gals. You know, we're not going to be pen pals. We're not going to be friends. We're not going to be homies. We're not going to be BFFs. We're not going to be hanging out at the clubs afterwards. We're not going to be spending vacations together. We're not going to be giggling and goofing around with each other. I'm here to win titles and then go home and do my other stuff or do whatever I have to do. I don't give a, Donna, I don't give a damn about what y'all have to do. And that was her attitude. That was Sharapova's attitude. She didn't have that type of personality that Kim Kleister's had or 
or anybody else who was always opening and welcoming to, to everybody. That wasn't Sharapova. So basically, when Sharapova got into a little bit of trouble because she really didn't make any friends, while amongst the ladies who were playing on the tour with her, no one was there to kind of say, well, you know, she made a mistake or this, that, and the other. Because she had been so cold and distant and aloof with the girls, they were basically like, fuck her. <laughs> it's like, they the hell with her. I don't give a fuck. You know, she had good. Uh, bitch. <laughs> All that type of stuff. And ladies, you know how vicious you can be. So don't sit there with your jaws open and your eyes bugging out like a stomped on toe frog. You, you gals know how vicious y'all can be with each other. Don't even sit there. Man, y'all are some mm, vicious somebody. So, yeah. But um, she had a good career. Made a boatload of money. Opened up some doors for some folks. And uh, she should be proud of what she did. And despite, again, despite the fact of her being popped for performance enhancing drugs or something that wasn't regulated by the WTA, I still think when everything is all said and done that she is a Hall of Fame tennis player. And I really hope that she gets herself into the Tennis Hall of Fame, the fact that they're her banishment for 15 months because of um, steroids or PEDs or whatever it was. I hope that doesn't uh, hope that doesn't hurt her chances in getting into the women's tennis or the tennis hall of fame. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that we could be with you. Glad I could be with you. Let me end up with this real quick. Georgetown continues continues to lose 66-63 today over Xavier. Hey, man, you know, what more can I say? I'm, I'm so proud of these guys. Again, these guys have lost um, three games in a row now, four games in a row now. And look, I'll be quite honest with you. The Marquette, the Marquette game where they just got blown out, it was embarrassing. It was it was what it was. But I could have told you that. I wasn't sitting up there angry. I wasn't sitting up there. I mean, Marquette did what they had to do. Marquette is a team that's probably going to be in the NCAA tournament. They were playing at home. They were looking for revenge from when Georgetown beat them at home last season, which cost them a strong opportunity to get into the tournament. They Eventually, they did. But at the time, that was a huge blow for Georgetown to come up to Marquette and to beat uh, Steve Wojciechowski and that team uh, last season when they were reeling at the time. So this was payback. This was definitely payback. And Marcus Howard had his way with Jagan Mosley and everybody else who tried to guard him. And he made a, he got what, an easy 32. And you know, it was what it was. Omir, you're seven. Matt McClung, not playing. I mean, today against Xavier, we're playing with George Mirasan, Jalen Robinson, two walk-ons. You can't win like that. Timothy Egohefe is a guy who should be redshirting this year. You can't win with a squad like that. Jagan Mosley is a guy is we're asking him to be a, be a guy who's, go, who's supposed to score. Jacob Mosley is not a guy who can score or who should be scoring 15 to 19 points a game. Jacob Mosley is a guy who should be scoring six to eight points, six rebounds, three assists, great defense, taking charges, glue guy. That's what Jacob Mosley should be doing. We can't ask. It's unfair for us to ask Jacob Mosley to try to score 15 to 18 to be offensive-minded on the, on the court expect Georgetown to beat teams who are vying for NCAA tournament bursts. Teams that are in the top 15, 20, 25 in the country. Okay, that's not fair to Jacob Mosley to ask him to do that and expect us to win basketball games. But because of the precarious situation that we're in with the injuries, that's what he has to do. On a team that Georgetown should have been this season, Jacob Mosley is a glue guy. 
On a team that Georgetown was supposed to be this season, Jamarco Pickett is a 3 and D guy. Jamarco Pickett should not be playing the power forward position. Jamarco Pickett should not be posting up anybody, regardless of size, regardless of position. Jamarco Pickett should not be putting the ball on the floor on a consistent basis more than two or three times, three times tops. Jamarco Pickett, unless he has a unfiltered path to the basket, should not be putting the ball on the floor going to the basket. Because I swear to goodness, I have never seen in a Georgetown uniform someone who cannot finish amongst the rim so poorly as Jamarco Pickett. When he was playing for Georgetown, Greg Monroe used to miss a lot of easy shots. But man, I don't, I mean, Jamarco Pickett, he's too skinny. He's not strong enough. It's not a natural fit for him to catch the ball with his back to the basket and try to make some Kevin McHale, Kevin Garnett move. He doesn't have the ability to take it to the rim. He doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the athletic ability. He doesn't have the speed to catch the ball in the block, turn and face, put a move on somebody, and then get to the rim. He doesn't have the finishing ability. He doesn't have the athletic ability. He doesn't have the skill to finish around the basket around taller players. He just doesn't have it. Jamarco Pickett should be a guy who should be concentrating if the team that Georgetown was constructed to be for this season What DeMarco Pickett should be doing is concentrating on playing defense and shooting three-pointers or mid-range shots. That's it. No post-up moves, no clear-outs, none of that stuff. But because we are so short-handed, that's exactly what DeMarco Pickett has to do. And he's just not physically strong enough. He's not physically able to get where he needs to go and finish around the basket or even close to the basket. I've never, again, I've never seen a guy miss so many bad-looking shots around the basket, four, five, six feet out, then Jamarco Pickett. When you get the ball in the post, just turn around and shoot it, man. Just turn around and shoot it. He catches the ball, and you can see him thinking, because what he's doing is not a natural move for him. I'm quite sure he's never played in the post, even when he was in high school. He never played in the post. So he gets the ball against these guys who are bigger, who are stronger, guards who, if he puts the ball on the floor because of his height, can steal the ball away from him. So he's thinking about that. He's cognizant of that. And he's thinking. And he's not playing. And it looks awkward. It looks uncomfortable. And the results show. But because of where we are as a team and the program, that's what Jamarco Pickett has to do. Hence the reason why we're losing basketball games. It's not his fault. It's not Georgetown's fault. It's not the coach's fault. It's not Ewing's fault. That's the position that he has to play. But you can't expect Georgetown to win basketball games. You can't expect Georgetown to play with the likes of Marquette and Seton Hall and Providence and all these teams that are vying for the NCAA tournament when you're handcuffed to a point where you have to have Jacob Mosley trying to be your main scorer and Jamarco Pickett trying to be your inside presence. Uh, You're not going to be successful. Terrell Allen is not going to be successful shooting the ball 10, 12, 14 times a game. That's not his job. That's not his role. That was never his role when he agreed to come to Georgetown. I'm glad he's with us. My God, could you imagine if Terrell Allen didn't come after everything that we've been through? I mean, he has been one of the very steady glue guys of this team. I don't know how many victories we'd win. I don't know. We'd be in double figures if Terrell Allen wasn't the point guard of this team. He has been a lifesaver. But we're asking him, because of the lack of attrition that we have on the team, the lack of players, we're asking him to do something that he's not comfortable doing, that he's unable to do if we're speaking about getting into the NCAA tournament. Terrell Allen should not be shooting the ball 
10, 12, 14 times a game. He's just not. He should be playing point guard 40 minutes a game, but he is. It's not his fault. It's not Coach Ewing's fault. It is what it is. And I think he's done, done an admirable job. I think the hearts, the heart and the guts and the grit and the determination that they've shown, the devotion that they have for each other, the unselfishness that they have for each other, I think it's been tremendous. It's been it's been inspiring. But you're putting those guys in situations, unfortunately, no fault of their own or anybody else's to where they're not going to be successful when you play the teams that they're playing in the league like the Big East. So Javon Blair, same thing. We're asking Javon Blair to be a 20-point scorer. Javon Blair's not a 20-point scorer. Javon Blair is a streak shooter. Javon Blair's not a guy who needs to be playing 40 minutes. That's not... If you're going to have Javon Blair... If you're going to ask Javon Blair to, to score 20 points a game or be your leading scorer and be the guy who's going to take the majority of the shots and create most of your shots, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give... You can be, you can be Coach K. You can be Tom Izzo. You can be Tom Cream. You can be... Name, you can name, name the coach. You can be Bill Self. You can be anybody. Name the coach. You're, you're not going to be able to get... You're not going to be able to get in the tournament. Plain and simple. It's just not going to happen. We got Jacob Mosley and Javon Blair trying to be your top two scorers. That, that's not a recipe for any coach to have if they want to get to the NCAA tournament. And the fact that Coach Ewing had those guys in that position only a few games ago is absolutely outstanding. And again, for me, what type of coach are you? Well, how much should we value you as your coach, as a coach? For me, it's how hard do these guys play for the coach and for one another? That's one of the things. I mean, you can be this great ecstasy old guy, and you can be the greatest drawer of plays out of timeouts, and you can put the greatest game plan together. But if you don't have a team to where you don't have the leadership you don't have the, or you have a team that has different agendas, or you have a team that's not for each other, or you have a team that looks at a situation and says, fuck it, I'm going for self. Believe me, I know, because I've done that when I was in junior college. I saw the situation, and I wanted to play ball in D1, so I wanted to play D1 basketball. I wanted to play for Paul Westhead at Viola Marymount, and I wanted to go out to L.A. and chase the girls and play that system and do all those type of things. So I didn't give a fuck whether we won or lost at San Diego Mesa. All I was interested in was putting together a good team so I could get myself a scholarship to continue my basketball career. I didn't give a damn if we won or lost. If I scored 20 points and we lost, I was happy. If we scored two points, if I scored two points and we won, I was disappointed. We scored 20 points and I lost, or we lost. Hey, let's head down to Tijuana, chase some girls, get drunk, and have some fun. If we won and I scored two points, now I'm going to stay at home and sit in a dark room. It was immature. It was selfish. It was ignorant. It was stupid. But I'm just telling you the truth. So I know a selfish ball player. I know someone who's looking out for self. I know when someone is not together with a team. I speak from experience. And so far, these guys, Javon Blair, Jacob Mosley, Terrell Allen, Kulis Wahab, all of these guys have stuck together and done a tremendous job. Jamarco Pickett, I'm up here espousing about his weaknesses and what he can't do. Jamarco Pickett gives his all every single play, every single minute, every ounce of what he has, along with Jacob Mosley, whose number should be retired for the effort and for what it means to be a college basketball player, to be a true student athlete. If you want to look up the NCAA's definition of what they think a true student athlete should be and how they should be represented and be brought to the masses, they should bring out Jacob Mosley. 
because that's the best get I know in terms of what the NCAA thinks a student athlete should be and how it should be represented from their definition. He gives everything that he has. This guy was a valedictorian at his high school. He's a finance major at Georgetown University. This guy is going to graduate. Um, he's going to graduate this year, and he's going to go on and have an absolutely fabulous career, whatever he does, whether it be going to Wall Street and making big money, whether it's just becoming a girl dad or whether it's becoming married and starting a family. Whatever Jacob Mosley is going to do, he's going to be highly successful at it. Same thing with Terrell Allen, same thing with Javon Blair, same thing with all of these guys that pass through Georgetown who stay three or four years. Matt McClung's going to have the same situation. Every player on that team, I bet you, is going to be better off playing for Georgetown and being better off being coached by Patrick Ewing. And we can talk about wins or losses, and those are important. Because Patrick Ewing doesn't get paid a lot of money to develop kids into great young men and to have them graduate. He gets paid to win basketball games. I get that. I understand that. But man, do not put this on him. Do not put this season on them kids. This was a team, even though they're losing, this is a team that even though they're going to probably finish 15 and 17 when everything is all said and done, they're going to go from 15 to 11 to 15 and 18. They're going to end this year on a seven-game losing streak. They're going to get their asses kicked royally by Creighton on Wednesday, and then they're going to come home on senior night and get their ass kicked by Villanova. Then they're going to go and play Xavier and lose in the first round of the Big East tournament. Their season's going to be over. I'm predicting it. I'm calling it. It ain't going to be pretty. It ain't going to be fun. I'm not looking forward to it, but I am looking forward to seeing these guys as a team, again, play as hard as they can, and I'm proud. I am very proud the fact that these guys have worn a Georgetown uniform and continue if you're speaking about Kudus Wahab and Timothy Egoefe and Jamarco Pickett who's coming back for a senior year, hopefully, and Javon Blair who's coming back for a senior year, hopefully, and the return of the Mac, Mac McClung, and maybe Omir Year 7 decides to come back. If not, then good luck to you wherever you play ball professionally, probably overseas. But we've got ourselves a four-man recruiting class coming in led by Kobe Clark and led by Tyler Beard and led by Jabari Sibley and um, Dante Harris, the point guard from Tennessee coming in. We're still in the mix for a couple of other guards like Kareem Maine out of, out of uh, Canada and some other places. And we still have the ability to get ourselves a grad, grad transfer as a point guard to kind of ease that bridge or ease that transition for whether it be Harris, whether it be Tyler Beard to take over the reins at the point guard. I'm excited about this team. I'm excited about this program. I am so happy that we have the coach that we have. And again, I am proud to be a guy who supports, will always support, will always love, will always stand by my team. The first love of my life concerning sports teams are concerned. It wasn't Magic Johnson and the Showtime Lakers. It wasn't the Washington football uh, team. It wasn't the Minnesota Vikings with Ahmad Rashad and Tommy Kramer. It wasn't the Washington Capitals because I can't stand and have no, no, uh, have no, don't care about hockey. It wasn't the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates in 1979. It wasn't any of those squads. It wasn't the 1977 Washington Bullets with Bullet Fever who got past the Iceman. It wasn't any of those squads. My team that got me into sports, my first love, my first team that I fell in love with was the John Thompson-led Georgetown Hoyas of Eric Sleepy Floyd and Big Sky and Eric Shelton and John Duran way back there in the late 70s along with Len Bias and Marilyn Terrapins. Uh, with, um, not Lynn Bias, but the Maryland Terrapins of Lefty Giselle and Greg Manning and Albert King and Buck Williams and all of those guys. So those were my two teams 
but Georgetown leading the way that led me to be such a huge sports fan, basketball fan, and the human being that I am today. I love me some stuff. Hold on for a minute. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Woo, good God. I think I'm going to go back, jump back and kiss myself. But if you're a beautiful woman between the ages of 38 and 47, and you want to jump back and kiss me, I'll be more than happy to oblige in that opportunity also. All right, I am out of here. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. My name is Wendell Wall. It's time for me to watch a little bit of Los Angeles, New Orleans Pelican basketball on the replay. So with that, I'm saying good night, good luck, good love, one love. Hit the music. 